Well, hello and welcome to episode number 311 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's massively packed episode, we give you a quick summary of the impact of the lockdown that's having on the industry and there's an accidental discharge in Los Angeles. And we uh, have an innovative seat design that allows disabled passengers to use their own wheelchairs during flights. In the military segment this week, the US Air Force's Air Combat Command plans uh, to award multiple contracts for adversary aircraft. And there's an update on the B-17 Flying Fortress incident. Lastly, Armando takes some reading recommendations while we have some unexpected downtime. Nick Codling talks about the Canadian repatriation from Morocco, among other things, and Armando throws his wife, Megan, out of a perfectly serviceable Cessna. So joining me this week in the PTUK studios is, of course, a guy who, well, let's just put it this way, he does push all the right buttons and moves all the right sliders. It is, of course, Matt Smith. Though not necessarily in the right order, <laughs> he says. I'm sorry, I stick by what I said last week. Lonely, it is so lonely. How how are things in the studio there, Matt? Oh well, you know, not really changed much. It's uh, you know, it's I've spent a lot of time in it this week. It has to be said. <laughs> Mainly because it's actually from our point of view. It's from my point of view. It's from isolation purposes. It's been quite nice because uh, I can sort of come upstairs away from getting under Mum's feet, basically, and doing her Yay. head in uh, by coming into the studio. And uh, it's been a great week of chatting to lots of uh, aviation chums. Actually, we've had a couple of meetups this week, haven't we? That have been a, an awful lot of fun. Yeah, your your shares in Zoom have gone through the roof, man. I know, absolutely. I wish I, I tell you what, I'm not joking. I wish I did have shares in Zoom, <laughs> especially after the last couple of weeks. So joining us as well via the realms of the interweb this week is, of course, he's the guy who puts the tech into NevTech. It's, of course, Neville Bounds. Hello, yes, uh, here we are again. Well, uh, the novelty has worn off, I'm afraid, <laughs> in terms of working at home. Right. Uh, we were doing yeah. quite nicely until about midday today, and we all go, oh, no, really? Yeah. So bored now, it's, everyone. It's painful, it's painful. <laughs> and uh, we have uh, several more weeks of this, I fear. So uh, our job is to try and keep everybody entertained with some uh, new content and, uh, well, just having a bit of a laugh. Yeah, and you're not going to find that on this show, so uh, okay. there's plenty of other ones out there there and I'm sure do the job. <laughs> so welcome Nev, it's nice to uh, to have you on again this week and I'm uh, I'm expecting that the banana is the shiniest it's ever been in its life. Uh, well not quite because next door we've just had their fence replaced and uh, oh. it is covered in uh, sawdust <laughs> and oh, general no. um, and also I had to go down to the um, uh, the alloy wheel plate uh, as well this week to have a couple of uh, oh has Auntie Sue been driving no no a bit oh. of uh, powder coating <laughs> uh, of the wheels wow thank you to Buckinghamshire <laughs> County for not pulling in those and on behalf of Plain Talking UK I'd like to apologise to Auntie Sue for the rudeness that's just been injured uh, I mean, oh honestly, she knows we love her yeah, she knows we love her anyway <laughs> so joining us uh, across the pond all the way in his uh, Lovely, warm, I should say, studio, because he's having some rather nice weather at the moment, is, of course, the legend that is Armando. Hey, guys. Uh, per our contract, this is one of the five shows for this year that Yay! Nev and I will be on at the same time. <laughs> yeah. 
No, uh, like you're saying, Carlos, I'm sure Dr. Steph can attest to it because she lives right on the lake also. It is a wonderful uh, springtime weather here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We've been out doing a lot of yard work and uh, social distancing has just resulted in a big to-do list at the house. And uh, yeah, so we're just kind of enjoying the time off. No, it's nice to have you on, as always, Armando. And uh, I'm sure that the warm weather will uh, continue, unlike the warm weather here in the UK, because Matt's just dropped a bombshell and said that the weather's going to be turning a bit naff this weekend. That is true. That is true. Uh, also, Dr. Steph is uh, uh, echoing your sentiments there, by the way, uh, Armando. Sunny and 81 degrees Fahrenheit, apparently. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah, she's only about a seven-minute flight uh, as the crow flies from right. me, so I hope it's not too <laughs> too different. Well, you know, anything's possible, especially in these funny times. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so joining us this week, we have a special guest, because uh, back with us on the show, he's been away for a little while, and he's been away for a good reason, because he's... He's not even in the UK anymore. He's over in sunny Hispania, and uh, he's also got some lots of news to tell us this week uh, on the show as well, since we haven't seen him for a while, because he is obviously, as well now, a CFI. So welcome on to the show, our resident CFI pilot. It's David Corston. Hi again, everyone. Thank you very much for having me on. It still feels weird. I thought I might be used to it now, but it still feels very weird and nerve-wracking, but we're looking forward to a good show. Because uh, yeah, Dave, you are you are literally like one of two people. Uh, well, there's three of us because the lovely Sophie came as well, didn't she? But you're one of two people or three people that turned up to our 100th all those years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was slightly cold that day. I remember it being one of the coldest days I think I can actually remember. But um, yeah, it was I, very I, good. Day. Ironically, it's very cold where you are now. I think you were saying. As I say, it's uh, uh, we've got. Um, uh, it was uh, Laura Davis was saying it's cloudy and blah in Michigan, and you were saying it's cold. In, uh, in Spain? Yeah, I think outside it probably is warm. I think we've got about 15 degrees. It's getting up to 20 during the day, but our house is designed to stay cold, and it's really very, very, very good at staying cold. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you don't, you don't get the cloud cover, do you? So it's, it's uh, sort of relatively okay during the day, and then as soon as the sun disappears, there's, there's nothing to keep the heat in. <laughs> yeah, it goes really cold. The house is just tiles and, and not many windows. So uh, it always seems cool inside, which is nice during the summer, but not so good now. No, no, I can imagine. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back on the show, David. We're going to have a good old chat with you later on in the show to find out what exactly you've been up to uh, for the last million years a since you last become on the show before we move on i wonder if i might be able to make a sort of slight technical explanation slash uh, announcement if that's okay uh, guys you may be noticing that our video quality is not uh, what it would normally be i don't know if you're aware but uh, certainly in the uk and i'm sure ac- across the world several uh, of our sort of streaming services if you like are having uh, having everything dialed down to ensure that there's sufficient broadband available to everyone so uh, there's very little i can do about bo- broadcasting in standard definition. Uh, Nev did actually walk out of his studio earlier in disgust uh, when it became apparent that that's all we could do. But So I apologise to everyone in the fact that uh, we're doing the best we can, but because of restrictions that YouTube have put on everyone, not just us, uh, we're only able to broadcast in standard definition at the moment. 
which Gemma, if you're watching the show on the TV downstairs, on the smart TV, it will look no different to you because you're used to watching everything in standard are definition. You, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to alienate the very few women that we have in our lives? Uh, first of all, Auntie Sue. Now you're picking on your own wife. Who else are you going to pick on tonight, mate? Come on. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. No, no more. No He's more. a brave man. I'll man. give you that. Anybody who spent more than five minutes with Gemma will know what a brave man he is. <laughs> so Matt, 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 you've yes. got uh, a little little piece of thanks um, to, uh, to to say at the beginning of this show. That's yeah, happening. absolutely. It's, uh, as you say, it's uh, very funny times at the moment and we just really wanted to take a quick opportunity to say uh, to uh, everyone, well, thank you, basically, is all we want to say, is uh, thank you to everyone in the amazing community who's uh, here with us and uh, thanks to those who have been joining us. I know uh, we've really noticed, uh, you know, that chat rooms and everything are so much uh, Fuller and Carlos will go through who's in the chat room in a moment. Uh, but also our extra special thanks to the amazing people on Patreon. We're we're all experiencing horrendous times at the moment. Many of us, uh, like Very myself true. and Carlos and that, have all been uh, furloughed. Uh, so especially to get a couple of extra patrons this week was, has been a real real s- wonderful surprise uh, thank you very very much I know there are so many better things that you could perhaps be spending your money on than what we do but uh, we, we, it's just really an opportunity to say thank you so very much we're, we're really really appreciative uh, thank you to all those who subscribe to our channel and also uh, who uh, favourite our, our show on their chosen podcast app whether it be on uh, itunes or whatever and uh, thank you to those who like our videos follow our social media and a big thanks to all of you who send us feedback we love getting feedback and we've got some great feedback coming up later on uh with uh, nick codling um but uh, and do please keep them coming in uh you are the reason why we do the show and without you we wouldn't be on air so please do keep it up thank you very much so joining us uh, in the world of YouTube tonight, loads of people in the YouTube chat room tonight, loving this. Got Chris Griggs, hello to you, Chris. Auntie Liz, obviously Auntie Liz is keeping an eye on things. Uh, Tanya W is also in there. Laura Davis, hello to you, Laura. Uh, Tanya W also in the chat room. A Plume, a word, name I haven't seen in the chat room before, A Plume. So hello to you, A Plume. Uh, Dr. Steph, our resident doctor, is looking after things as well in the chat room richard adams jenny in rome hope you are keeping very well in rome jenny uh pilot logan lynch another new one i haven't seen in the chat room before uh we've got uh masha hello to you masha chris griggs is also in the chat room uh just scrolling down make sure i don't miss anyone in case i do oh armando's obviously in the chat room this week it's always good to see armando alan white Another one uh, we haven't seen before in the chat room. Tony S. Hello to you, Tony. Uh, we've got Matt as well from the A320 podcast. So we better do things right this evening and get everything uh, exactly 100% uh, right. Otherwise, we'll be in trouble. And uh, yeah. Paul Tricker as well, our uh, local listener, Paul Tricker, is also in the, uh, in the chat room. Uh, Dr. Steph is picking you up on a few things. Tanya, so good that you're having to mention her twice, look. Isn't that good? <laughs> Apparently you mentioned her twice. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, right. well, I well, no, she is worthy of two shout-outs. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Oh, so it's uh, thanks to everyone who has joined us on this Friday evening. It is just a quick date check, 27th of March. So we're getting ever closer to April. Uh, just coming I, up to 
12 minutes past 7. Am I the only one that is literally losing track of what day it is at the moment? Yes. (laughs) It's like Christmas Uh, only. I I get that as well. Rubbish. (laughs) I woke up this morning, I thought, oh, it's definitely um, Wednesday. And I woke up the day before that, I thought, oh, it must be Monday. It's all over the shop this week. No good at all. Uh, oh, yeah, no, uh, Lane Street agrees, saying that uh, T-Dub definitely worthy of a double mention. Absolutely. Mm, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> sorry, so, uh, I, sorry, it's because I've got new tech to play with, with, with the, the being able to put the messages on the screen. Uh, it'll wear off. The novelty will wear off. It's fine. <laughs> oh, carry on. Carry on, on Carlos. You carry, carry on. on. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, boy, we are going to start the show then, as we do each week, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if... Everyone's ready? Yeah! Let's Let's go. So kicking off this week's first news story, well, it's a, a lot of news stories, really, because it's all to do with, obviously, the what's going on in the world as it is at the moment. So we've got a few little condensed I've, stories. I've got my class ready in case you mention that word. <laughs> oh, blimey, yeah, I've got it here in my hand. So uh, London City uh, Airport closes to private and commercial traffic. In it, and uh, it's safe to say that uh, that's going to be hit hard because a lot of people do use London City Airport for business. And uh, quite a few pilots we know also fly into there. Uh, Ryanair does not expect to operate flights in April or May. Uh, outside of rescue and essential connection flights. Air France's international route network currently consists of 25 active routes despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Besides its regular flights, the airline also conducts repatriation flights in collaboration with the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Also, at least 55 global airlines have completely stopped flying scheduled flights due to the travel bans, airspace closures and low demand for travel. Among them, two of the three so-called uh, Middle East the three carriers, Emirates, Etihad and Qatar, or Qatar, or Qatar, however you want to say it. With the UAE government closing the country to passenger traffic, Emirates and Etihad have both stopped flying. However, Qatar has gone the other way entirely. Qatar Airways adds 10,000 extra seats to their network and reserves uh, plans to ground the, uh, or reverses plans, I should say, to ground the A380. So it's safe to say it's been a bit of a busy week, what with the airlines, and it's sad, actually, I think, in some ways, because I do strongly believe that there'll be quite a few other airlines who don't make it through this whole thing. Thoughts, guys? Just see that uh, in the news, in fact, just tonight, that uh, Virgin uh, would like the government to get the checkbook out. Mm. And that's been met with um, mixed results, I have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, 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 and they've we're... been flying some cargo flights as well. Uh, so cargo only. So they've been uh, repurposing a 787 uh, to do some cargo ops. Mm. Yeah, in fact, actually, um, uh, Armando, um, we're sort of talking about the possibility of people, because uh, uh, you, you mentioned there briefly, obviously, that uh, uh, the government seemed less inclined to sort of help out the UK aviation industry, uh, but that's not very much not the story in the, in the States, Armando. Yeah, and I think, uh, so 
you know, obviously we're not going to make the whole show about this COVID-19 thing because I think everybody's heard it. Oh, hang on. He it. said it. Glasses, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> One moment. Cheers, everyone. This is a big old... Um, Moving on. <laughs> so I, I think the best thing to do, you know, I'll we'll just kind of talk about headlines like kind of Carlos did right there. And um, I'll talk a little bit about what's going on here in the U.S. And I, and I think Nev, you know, can can kind of wrap up because obviously the if you're an av geek or even just kind of watching any TV or reading the news that there is just so many stories right now on all of this going on that it, it was hard to um, curate the stories and kind of find what's relevant. So I, I think here in the U S uh, what I picked out was, and even this stuff changes every day. Uh, we find a story on the 23rd by the 24th, it had changed by the 26th. It had changed, but, uh, here, some of the highlights, United Airlines cut, cut uh, their domestic capacity by 52%. Um, they're only doing six international uh, routes right now. Alaska Airlines is down. They cut 70% of their schedule. Uh, American Airlines introduced social distancing on its flights, which was interesting because I have to commute. Like, I have to go to work on Sunday, and I was trying to look at the seats available, and that and on the seat map, you could see how they've spaced people apart. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But uh, American Airlines itself is is down quite a bit. They're they're talking about seventy five percent of the, the JFK operation is canceled. Seventy percent at LaGuardia, fifty three percent reduction at DFW, which is their their main hub. Uh, Delta, you know, it, our, our our thoughts are with our friends over at. Uh, other podcasts that may fly for similar airlines, <laughs> similar to Delta. See what I almost did there. Um, you know, they're parking uh, 600 of their aircraft. Uh, and then up, up in Canada, Air, Air Canada is offering unpaid leave to 600 pilots. Um, lots of their ground crew staff. WestJet announced that it's uh, going to keep criti- critical routes open across Canada. But... Uh, all in all, it's about a 50% reduction in uh, domestic flights. And then, sadly, as you were just saying, Carlos, yeah, not everybody's going to make it. So Compass Airlines and Transstates Airline, um, which are both owned by Transstates Holdings, they are shutting down and uh, ceasing operations. Um, Compass, I think, is is looking at shutting down in April. They, they were flying uh, Embraer 175s for Delta and uh, trans states were, you know, they were planning a t- slow shutdown over 2020, um, but they're probably going to start going away much quicker. And th- and in the trans states holdings, um, that only leaves GoJet. Uh, GoJet is operating the, the CRJ 550s for United Express. Um, so our regional airlines are suffering just as much as the major airlines and uh, another pretty big airline regional uh, Mesa uh, based in Phoenix. Um, they're flying for American and United is they're being looked at as potentially at risk uh, right now too. So yeah, like we said last week, it is the landscape in aviation is just going to look very different. Even when it does start to recover, it, um, it, it'll be a, another cataclysmic event in aviation and, and it's going to look a little bit different here in a, in a couple of years. 
And I think it was you who said a few a few or oh, a week ago, I think it was Matt, you said that there's um there's even more aircraft parked up at Norwich now, I think you said. Yeah? Uh, well, I, I thought there was. I think I think actually somebody was saying that they uh, they were parked up there actually for for um, paintwork or something, wasn't it? Because they do a lot of maintenance and stuff. Mm. At, uh, there's there's quite a good workshop I think going out of Norwich. Um, I haven't heard anything sort of different uh, to that. But I mean, I know I know BA and and other such people. I mean, <laughs> I think I, one of the tweets I was reading during the week and they were saying that Cardiff Cardiff seems to have become basically BA's car park. Um, mm. You know, a lot of a lot of BA stuff has been flown into there and sort of actually, Mike, Mike has um, Mike has made a good point in the chat room. I don't know if you can bring that one up on the screen yeah, yeah, about uh, Captain Craig. Uh, Mike in the chat yeah, rooms has said that um, some of you might already know Captain Craig, who uh, we all know, uh, flew a leg from uh, DCA to Boston. One passenger on the way up, two passengers on the way back. That was on a E one seven five. Wow. Okay. So, um, actually, uh, yeah. inter- interestingly enough, again, actually going back to what we were talking about, uh, Paul Tricker from from Beckles, our only listener in Beckles, uh, saying I saw a photo <laughs> earlier of a load of BA planes parked up at Bournemouth as as well. Yeah. I, I guess I guess parking is genuinely a big issue, isn't it? Um, in regards to, you know, because yeah, I, I think uh, never were we saying before the show that um, there's not a lot going on at London City. Um, well, what they're going to do is that they are <clears throat> closing London City until at least June, by the looks of things, obviously, because it's a primarily a business um, hub, yeah. uh, airport for, you know, short haul uh, European operations. And of course, they might need that runway for uh, uh, military operations uh, mm. because of the stuff that's going on at the Nightingale Hospital, which uh, formerly called the Excel Centre, which you and I know very well, um, is going to be turned into a 4,000-bed uh, hospital. Um, yeah, which is, I, I saw uh, that incredible. picture. Uh, obviously, there will be no Costa Coffee being sold there. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I suspect, uh, uh, I suspect uh, not. Would you? But, um, um, so, yeah, uh, and then at Gatwick, uh, they're um, reducing operations there considerably. Uh, looks like um, they're shutting the North Terminal at some point, and uh, that will be until the end of April. So, um, yeah. but as we just talking to some aviation chums today, there's no point in keeping this stuff open uh, with maintenance and ATC and all the rest mm. of it if, if there's if there's no nothing flying or, or very few things flying. Yeah, yeah. That picture, towers. that picture that Matt's got on the screen right now is is amazing, isn't it? I mean, geez, I, I never, well, I guess never say never, but. What what a sight, isn't it? Mm. And they are keeping two meters apart, so that, that's good. oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> ensuring social distancing is being done to yeah. the max, isn't it? I mean, cool. it's uh, okay. clearly the answer. <laughs> okay, we're going to leave you with just a few interesting tidbits and headlines that have come up as a result of the pandemic, because it's not all terrible news. Um, El El Al have operated its first direct commercial flight to Australia. Uh, Qantas have completed the first A380 flight non-stop from Australia to London. Um, and Aer Lingus have flown uh, to Asia for the first time with pilots volunteering to bring back medical supplies. Well, wow. now, is, is that, interestingly, the, the last one there, the Aer Lingus one, is that really the first time that Aer Lingus have flown, flown from Asia to, um, uh, Aer Lingus have flown into to Asia? Is that, is that really the first time? I'm, I'm assuming so. I know they do a lot of flights uh, to the US um, and obviously around the UK, but I'm assuming it's the first time to Asia. 
Yeah, oh no, no, apparently, yes, it is. It's all right. The, my, the producer has just been in touch. He said, yes, it has been fact checked. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is indeed the truth. Well, I, I'm, I'm amazed. I couldn't help uh, but, but be surprised by that. Now, so, but the, the first A380 flight non stop um, uh, from Australia to London is, is, is that, um, I mean, that's, that's a long flight, isn't it? How long, how long must that be? Uh, well, if they're going from, um, uh, I would imagine if they're going from uh, Melbourne or Sydney, uh, best part of t- 22 hours, probably. Um, but uh, probably not with a full load, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they, they have operated, they ha- were operating, in fact, I think they are still operating from Perth, uh, with the uh, 787 aircraft. Um, but, um, yeah, it's all about load factors and also... Um, keeping you know close on, on on the winds as you get towards Europe as well, because you don't have to stop off in Frankfurt on the way back for a, a splash and dash, do you? Really? Uh, well, no, no quite. Uh, forgive my ignorance there. Uh, El Al, who are they? Uh, that's the Israeli uh, national airline. Okay, right. Gosh. So that's, I suppose that's, uh, that's, that's it's not like flying from because I, I guess areas around that area are quite often used uh, airports around that area are quite often used as a as a, a base, aren't they, for um, like a stopover if you like to change. Yeah, a lot of Middle East airports yeah. are used as a sort of a bit of a halfway house. Well, it's, it's, it's uh, like Dubai. Dubai is yeah. used quite regularly, isn't it? As well as um, um, oh, where am I thinking of um, uh, Kuala Lumpur, isn't it? That's quite often a, yes. a, a stopover place for either there or New Zealand, isn't it? So moving on to the next story, and uh, Armando, this is uh, well, this is a posh posh jet story. Yeah, uh, Pip and I were talking about this. I, I was talking about it um, in our sort of group chat that we had the other day. Uh, this particular news story is from Yahoo News. Uh, it's, you know, five days old now, so it's dated. Uh, but the wealthy are flocking to private jets as the pandemic uh, spreads and airlines are uh, suffering. So with the maelstrom of the pandemic, uh, one sector of the industry favored by the wealthy is thri- thriving, which is private jets. Uh, fears of massive Uh, Bankruptcies, calls for emergency bailouts have swept global carriers in recent days with one top U.S. official warning that the outbreak threatens the industry even more than the September 11th attacks. Uh, For Richard Zaire, CEO of a U.S.-based private jet charter company, the emails and phone calls just keep coming. Inquiries have gone through the roof, he told uh, this uh, news outlet, noting his company, Paramount Business Jets has seen a 400% increase in queries with bookings up roughly 20 to 25%. Uh, It's completely that thing, uh, he added. Uh, We're seeing regular private jet clients flying as they normally do. However, this surge of clients coming our way, and the majority of them have never flown private. Uh, Across the world, airlines have been slashing capacity, as we just talked about, passengers canceling travel plans, One analytics company estimates as many as 3.3 million seats on transatlantic flights alone are disappearing. Um, So this particular company said that many of their bookings were coming from clients who had emergencies and either could not find seats on commercial routes or did not want to risk flying on commercial aircraft. Um, For example, one booking involved a woman who was uh, flying her elderly mother across the United States. She needed to be on oxygen and was being flown coast to coast. Um, 
So the her family felt that it was necessary to pay that premium price. Um, let's see. Uh, there was another story from Chinese uh, students paying $20,000 for private jets out of the U.S. Um, so there, there's plenty of these stories going on. But, um, you know, a good point that Pip had was if you have the means to do this, that's, that's great. But the travel restrictions still apply. Um, so if, if travel is restricted for, you know, certain nationalities coming in and out of other countries, a private company can't, can't really get around that because you still have to go through customs when you land at, at one of these um, airports. But, I, I mean, you know, we have a lot of friends in the community, a lot of listeners in the community who are going through tough times flying for regionals and majors. Um, I'm on a, quite a few of the private and charter job boards, and those jobs are still coming up. Part one, uh, part 91 and part 135 uh, private jet companies are, are still hiring. So if you find yourself in a position where, where you're looking for other employment right now, um, take a look over at the charter business right now because they may be um, a good place to, to hang out for a little while until you can get back into the, into the airlines. I, I will say, since since, uh, since we were monitoring the chat room, Pip does say it, it seems to be a little bit different in Europe. So apparently the the travel restrictions in Europe may be precluding this kind of um, surge in business aviation. But apparently here in the U.S., it's still uh, you know we don't we don't have those same travel restrictions uh, between countries, and certainly you know interest interstate and interstate you can you can mm. still travel so uh, maybe that's why we're seeing it over here and uh, and not so much over there in europe so nev story number three on the mm. list is um regarding some accidental discharge <laughs> yes obviously a lot of opportunity for innuendo uh, in your endo <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's on simpleflying.com and uh, simpleflying.com has just started to follow me on Twitter. Uh, so they're obviously desperate for more followers, clearly. Uh, but it says that an unusual incident occurred at Delta Airlines' new hangar at Los Angeles International Airport. Uh, earlier this week, there was an accidental foam discharge. This caused the whole hangar and the ground outside to end up covered in foam. Uh, the thick substance towered up to the wings of the Atlanta-based carrier's smaller aircraft within the hangar. According to Tank Diver, a member of airline's uh, popular forum, staff could not contain the foam. Therefore, employees had no choice but to open the hangar door to let the material out. There are reports on the website that a plane backed into the hangar uh, with the auxiliary power unit switched on. This may have triggered the fire suppression system, forcing <laughs> foam to be dispersed. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there most likely would have been some sort of heat within the building to cause the incident to occur. Alternatively, a sensor could have gone rogue, it says. Uh, staff at the site must have been panicking whilst the foam spread across the vicinity. Regardless, at least the aircraft here got a squeaky clean polish out of it. Uh, Delta <laughs> operates at LAX's Terminal 2, 3 and Terminal 2B, uh, sorry, TB, which is Tom Bradley International Terminal. 
the airline formally uh, departed from Terminal 5 and Terminal 6. However, it switched in spring 2017 as part of a $1.86 billion plan to improve operations in the Californian city. Uh, Simple Flying reached out to Delta for comment on what happened at the LAX hangar. Uh, A spokesperson for the company shared that the fire suppression system in the hangar malfunctioned and caused foam to be dispersed. However, Delta is still investigating the cause of the incident. Nonetheless, there was no impact on operations and the airline is working with its local environmental contractor to clean up the foam from the aircraft and hangar. Uh, Last September, however, a similar incident happened at Airbus's brand new manufacturing plant in Mobile, uh, Alabama. Uh, Remember, we covered that story as well. Um, Not in foam, but in uh, news. (laughs) Um, A fire suppression system was activated, which caused fire retardant foam to be sprayed all over the building. Additionally, the first A22300 that was being assembled in the hangar got covered. Ultimately, the system's sensitivity shows that it can be relied upon if there was an actual fire. However, it looks like some units uh, are extra fragile when it comes to a little bit of heat in the area. Therefore, it can be a costly job to clear up the mess if the foam is discharged without a proper reason. Still, uh, best to err on the side of caution, I would say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, Lane uh, Street is saying in the chat room here, he's saying, uh, uh, how does a plane back into a hangar, which I think is a good point. Yeah. Uh, the air stick suggested perhaps they put it into reverse. Uh, which is uh, obviously uh, uh, well. Of course, option. some aircraft are able to, uh, to are reverse thrust. Oh, oh we yeah, have a reverse um, thrust. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah the Mad Dogs. Yeah. It's not ideal, uh, yeah. but if you have to do it, you have to do it. You know. So. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Myla has a good point. It did rather sound like the start of a joke. There, it has to be honest. You know, <laughs> Just, how does a plane back into a hangar? Um, is it, I don't know. How does a plane back into a hangar? Anyone insert a punchline here? No? With a crunch. Uh, Right, okay. (laughs) And again, uh, Laura Davis is saying that there are so many things to make fun of in this story. Um, uh, I mean, it's, you know, I'll be honest with you, the word accidental discharge is what pricked my interest. Yes. I just, I just love the, I just love that first picture on that story, the the very top picture, it showed the hangar. And it's, it's just, it's so so much foam. Yeah, yeah quite. So much oh, yeah. foam. When, when that thing starts going, it is not. We had a, we had a similar accidental discharge in, in the military. Um, and, uh, and I think is that, is that a thing. euphemism for something? Are we about to get into no, trouble? No. Nope, not at all. <laughs> I meant that in the completely technical way. Right, um, of course. No, yeah, to be fair, the APU on some of these aircraft is pretty high up on the tail and uh, if you're backing an airplane in, that's a, that's a lot of heat and exhaust, which is exactly what those sensors are looking for. And once that foam starts going, it's pretty hard to, I mean, I think it's supposed to fill the hangar it within, uh, I don't know the timeline, but it's like 60 seconds or something like that. It's supposed to completely suppress a major Everything. fire. <laughs> yeah. I mean it does so. look it it does look like it snowed, doesn't it? We're looking at that picture there, it does look like it snowed. Actually, Matt, <laughs> I was thinking that that would make one heck of a really good foam party. Yeah, absolutely. All, system. all we need is your disco yeah. gear now, mate. Yeah. And uh, there is a full on party there ready to be yeah. going, isn't there? Obviously not now. Well so no, not at the moment. No no no. Social distance. Well no, you could keep two Oh no, this would be the first time to to have a foam party. That's 
You know, yeah, that, if... I'm pretty sure that will kill COVID nineteen. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Cheers, everyone. Quick drink. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. sorry, I said the yeah. word accidentally. I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, moving on. Drink responsibly, to... children. Drink responsibly. <laughs> moving on. This is steadily becoming a beer podcast as hey. opposed to an aviation one. So, moving on, uh, David. Uh, the next story for you is uh, all about a very special seat design. Yeah, this one is from aviationpros.com, um, and the headline is New Airline Seat Design Will Allow Disabled Passengers to Fly in Their Own Wheelchairs. Um, so there's a company called Merlon Lave Seating of Denver, Colorado, um, has unveiled a prototype of a new airline seat that will allow passengers of restricted mobility um, to fly on airlines in their own wheelchairs. Um, so the problem was that um, passengers in wheelchairs can't fly in them. They must transfer from their wheelchair into a sky chair um, to get down the narrow aisle and then transfer again to their airline seat. Um, disabled access for air travel is immensely challenging at best um, and dehumanizing at worst, which is why many people with disabilities avoid air travel completely. The problems encountered include uh, wheelchairs getting damaged when transported in cargo bays of aircraft, um, our, uh, PRM, which is People's Reduced Mobility Injuries Caused During Transfers, uh, loss of independence as PRMs must leave their own chair, um, and little to no access to the bathroom in flight, um, and an inability to perform regular body extensions and therapy in flight, which many uh, powered wheelchairs can do. Uh, so this company has come up with a solution, um, and their design is based on a proven side-slip seat design, but is modified from a standard economy class triple seat of a very wide economy class double seat. Uh, so during normal operations, um, it's a normal economy class seat, but when, requi when required, uh, the aisle seat is slid over the top of the window seat and then locked into place for normal use. Uh, the space opened by sliding the aisle seat over the top of the window seat offers 36 inch wide uh, space to secure a manual or powered wheelchair in place. Uh, a Q-strength wheelchair docking system, which is already well, widely used on buses and trains, is um, used to secure the wheelchair to the aircraft cabin floor. One advantage of this design is that the airlines do not lose any revenue or real estate, which has been an issue with previous designs attempting to address this problem. Um, another advantage is that PR, uh, PRMs are flying to their, in their own wheelchairs, um, which often has many accessibility features specific to their own needs. Uh, the significant regulatory and legislative pressure and momentum to allow wheelchairs to fly on planes. In September 2019, the U.S. Department of Transportation announced uh, the formation of the Air Carrier Access Act Advisory Committee. Um, this is established uh, pursuant to the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018. Um, the goal of the committee is to essentially improve the air travel experience of passengers with disabilities and increase um, its access to air travel. Um, they've launched a GoFundMe campaign as well to expedite the design, engineering, analysis and certification of this seat. Um, and they say that it costs millions to design and certify an airline seat. Um, they're a small startup with limited resources um, and their recently certified S1 economy class seat is their main focus. We've chose to crowdfund the project so that they can get certified and in the air as soon as possible. And their aim is to be flying within 18 months. So it looks like it's a good option because I've never, I've always wondered why... Um, people with wheelchairs are unable to, to get down the aisle, obviously, and, and it's sometimes getting up into and off the aircraft can be quite difficult. So this looks like a good 
a good solution. Well, of course, actually, on public transport in general, for a long time, uh, there's been like space, if you like, room for buggies and that kind of thing. On, on I'm using buses as an example, uh, where there are special places that you can then secure the wheelchair using a seatbelt, essentially, uh, to lock it down, to stop it from moving around. And presumably, as long as they have the provision to have an appropriate, because it's only a lap belt that we're expected to wear during flight, obviously. Um, uh, or, or like when coming in to land and take off. Uh, I mean, I, I guess there's no reason why, as long as they make sure that there's the provision to add a, a lap belt to the chair, um, that you, you can't do that in flight, really. I mean, it's uh, it's sort of, uh, it's always been one of those, you know, you can understand why people aren't keen to, to fly for that that very reason, because it's not, um, as you say, very dehumanising, I think, as they say in, in the story. I mean, that well, was... I think I think anything like this is really good for, for less able people to be able to, 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 to go on aircraft, mm. you know, to experience flying and aviation. Um, my, my only concern would be the airlines moaning because of the weight of the actual unit. Also, so. Yeah, the weight. And it's always, to me, it's always seemed like the obvious solution is to, mm. to use the front row like of economy class or the front the one mm. nearest the door and then swap change one of them seats for a place like this but you can understand why airlines wouldn't want to do that because they're going to lose up revenue um if it's one of the, the so uh, near the front they're going to charge extra for that seat normally so i guess they they wouldn't want to lose revenue but with this solution hopefully there's the best of both worlds mm. yeah uh and richard adams in the chat room just said exactly what i was about to say it's uh, i don't know you know, yeah, there's there's just a lap belt that you're expected to wear, but um, those seats are crash rated and they're crash rated to a certain number of Gs. Um, so my question would have to be the strength of the wheelchair itself. So understand that they're trying to get the certification for the uh, attachment system for the chair to the airplane, but then the actual strength of the chair would vary so wildly that... Um, you know, I'm sure they've thought of it, that, that they're probably basing their, you know, their research on this. But mm. um, I think that would be a pretty big challenge to get through the FAA to, to get that risk part of it uh, addressed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I, I, it's certainly something worth looking into, isn't it? I, I think it's, um, you know, that, that ability to stay in the device to which you're familiar with, well, I, I'm sure will make an awful lot of disabled passengers feel a lot more comfortable about the whole experience. Mm. And let's not forget, there's there's more and more pilots as well uh, now uh, who are, you know, gaining their licences. And the, these are a lot of these people in the news that we've seen over the last few months have been pilots who are in wheelchairs but are still given the or the ability to be able to to learn how to fly. Actually, Chris Griggs has got a question here in the chat room. Here aren't the front seats required to be filled by ABPs? Uh I'm not sure what ABP is. Able Um I don't know about the front seats. I think only only the exit rows, to my knowledge, at least my company, the only uh, only the exit rows. Yeah, I thought it was the same as the exit rows because yeah. I, I assume that they're, they're thinking there's going to be a cabin crew near the normal exits. True. True. Yeah. Now, row one is, you know, if you're flying something like Ryanair and EasyJet, that is an exit row. Um, but if you've got uh, separation in the classes, you know, so you've got a bulkhead between economy or premium economy. Um, I don't I don't think there are requirements for those seats um, other other than, you know, what you hear about. The, the bags can't obstruct the path out of the way, but that's because there's no under seat um, storage in front of them. Mm. 
But I, I will agree with you guys on one point and, and I'm glad. So while I'm, you know, I, I'm curious as to what the outcome of this research is. It is, it is incredibly um, degrading. I think, I, I guess it's only degrading if you let it be degrading, but it's such a to do if you're differently abled, you know, cause you, you show up in your own wheelchair and then you have to transfer to the skinny wheelchair, mm. um, you know, and then, and then there's the announcements <laughs> oh, over the PA. Hey, anybody that with disabilities, anybody that needs time to board. So now you're, you're doing that transfer from chair to chair with an attendant in front of everybody and the rest of the gate. And then you go down the gate and then, you know, we talk so much about airlines seats being so restrictive that mm. now you're doing this dance to try to get through the aisle in a wheelchair. I mean, it's, it's hardly wide enough to get your carry on bag through without bumping into the armrest. Um, and then after you've boarded, everyone else starts boarding and is like, Oh, that's the disabled person. <laughs> You know, I, there has to be a, a better way to do this. I, you know, <laughs> very true. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I, I think it's great research, isn't it? it? I think I think it's something that very much needs to uh, needs to be done, isn't it? I, I think that anything they can do to try and make flying more accessible to everyone, whether they be uh, able-bodied or otherwise, I think is it's got to be a step in the right direction. Even if we're a long way away from seeing it in standard um, flight, it, it's got to be. It's got to be a great idea, isn't it? Actually, I will just say, just on the on the on the behalf of the or benefit the airlines, the last three trips that that, that Grandad made to Malta, I have to say that the EasyJet staff at the airport at Stansted were incredible because mm. uh, he was you know not able to walk very long distances on his own, and the staff there were brilliant uh, when it came to um, to getting on board the aircraft. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So, next story. Uh, this one is on the in.reuters.com website. And it's uh, kind of good news, I think, in the current situation we're in now. But this is regarding uh, Italian airline Al Italia. Headline is Al Italia to relaunch with much smaller fleet. And the Italian government plans to take control of the loss-making carrier Alitalia in a month or so, creating a new company that will start off with a much smaller fleet, Union sources said on Monday. According to the sources, the industry ministry told unions on Monday that the new Alitalia would start with 25 to 30 aircraft, which is still quite a few actually, you really you think, around a quarter of the fleet it was operating before the coronavirus update drink then. Alitalia, the industry ministry, were not immediately available for comment. The government said that 25 to 30 aircraft would only be the starting point, but we are concerned the fleet would not be expanded once the emergency is over, one of the sources told Reuters. So the government did not spell out what its plan was for Alitalia's workforce, which is currently in excess of 11,000 staff. Uh, a meeting between the industry, transport and labour ministers and the unions is scheduled for March the 30th, uh, the USB union said in a statement. Even if we acknowledge a serious crisis that the country is experiencing, the new Alitalia should be created with the idea of developing and increasing its flights once the emergency is over. Uh, the GGIL and the FLIT union said in a joint statement that the two unions said they have asked the government for details about the carrier's business plan, adding it should protect jobs. The loss-making airline is currently operating 100 flights a day, core of its normal activity due to the virus outbreak. 
Uh, the government last week approved a decree allowing it to put the airline under state control again after 11 difficult years of private management. It has embarked uh, far, or earmarked 500 million euros or $537,000, a million dollars, uh, for the whole airline sector in Italy. But government sources said the bulk of the money would go to Alitalia, which is rapidly running out of cash. Now, I will say, the uh, story does go on a little bit after that, but I will say, I'll tell you, one of the things that Alitalia could, could do is change their livery, because I, I, I don't think I... <laughs> has, has Alitalia changed their livery in the last 20 years? Nev? Mm, not sure. I uh, don't think they have. Do you think by doing that, that will save the airline? No, but it will just make <laughs> the aircraft look nicer. Right. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes, I mean, it's a good point, uh, Nev, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. No, this, this, is, this is good. I mean, I hope this all goes ahead, because obviously with the way things are now in the world, obviously this came out Monday, um, and whether, you know, depending on how, how long this thing goes on um i'm not getting drunk yet guys uh depending on how long this thing goes on you know is this still going to be viable in two or three months time mm. i mean i mean it's it's a, it's an odd time to be uh to doing something like this but then i suppose you know you you either let it fold or you do something about it now don't you i mean they've obviously got a vision for it and they think <laughs> they think they can pull it off i guess um, actually our, our our resident fact checker and uh producer of the show has said that the livery was updated in 2015 oh very good <laughs> absolutely right um, thank you john <laughs> that's the way forward uh okay uh on to so yeah on to the next story and uh armando this one is uh well it's all to do with those tough ids yeah or real ids um here in the United States, each state determines its own standards for identification, usually a driver's license. Um, so this originally was going to go into effect in October of 2020. Uh, and from the government website, it says the Real ID Act establishes a minimum security standard for license issuance and production and prohibits federal agencies from accepting for certain purposes, driver's license and identification from states not meeting the minimum standards. Uh, for example, some of the purposes for the act or for this new real ID was to access federal facilities, entering nuclear power plants, which we all do, and uh, <laughs> boarding federally regulated commercial aircraft. So um, because of everything that's going on, uh, the Department of Homeland Security has decided to push back the enforcement deadline from October 2020 to October 2021. Um, this is essentially an enhanced driver's license. Uh, it is supposed to be compliant with legislation passed by Congress back in 2005. Um, so the federal, state, and local response to the spread of the coronavirus here in the United States uh, necessitates... Oh, oh sorry. I'm, I'm, I know. I was going to see who <laughs> yeah. picked up on it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I've got <clears throat> me glass. Cheers, everyone. Yes. Drink responsibly. Jeez, and we're only 35 minutes into the show. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Uh, Whis- let's see. Whis- <laughs> Excuse me. Whiskey was maybe a bad choice. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, the states across the country are obviously closing their access to uh, their Department of Motor Vehicles, where you get your license issued. So this would preclude millions of people from applying for and receiving their real ID. So this was originally a big issue, uh, the Real ID Act, because it, it's hard to mandate anything across all the states uh, in you know, 
in the United States. Uh, but this was particularly difficult because not everybody had the necessary documents to produce it. If you've never had a passport or a reason to have a passport, then that was one of the documents. Uh, many people don't have their birth certificates or a social security card. Um, so it, it just varied state from state what, what you needed to produce to get a, an ID card. So um, this allows everybody out there just an extra year to go get a real ID. Um, and for all intents and purposes, the, the, the thing that you're going to use it, unless you work in a nuclear facility, is to board um, aircraft. So there you go. You got an extra year to do this. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Laura Davis is saying in the chat room here, uh, she's saying, actually, I think I'm going to do get my passport first and then update my ID since uh, I need to do both anyway, and it seems easier that way in uh, MI. Uh, South Carolina. In Michigan. In Mich yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Steph, uh, she's saying that uh, uh, SC, which I presume is South Carolina, is that correct? Yep, she's yeah, she's in South Carolina. There's hope for me yet. Make it super easy. Just an <laughs> online application and $25. You don't even have to go into the DMV. Woo! Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So each state has a little bit different way to do it. Mine wasn't terribly difficult, but I had the, the necessary documents. Um, yeah, like Laura's mm -hmm. saying, if you, I think more and more people in the U.S., I, especially because I have to check IDs uh, often. Um, if we're not, if my company, if we're not flying into a TSA uh, airport, which we don't, we don't, we don't always have TSA routes. Um, for example, if you fly, we have a couple routes out of Dallas, Fort Worth, and there are two regional airports that, that don't have any TSA screening. So those flights have to go into the corporate terminal. Um, well, it's entirely up to the crew to, uh, double check that, that the identification matches the manifest and, I've seen a lot more people traveling with their passport, which is um, pretty Unusual. unique here in the States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, actually, interestingly enough, Alan White has just said in the chat room here, uh, was there any airport security awareness training slash assessment? I mean, have you been aware of of anything, you know, to, to deal with these regulations? Um, well, I mean, uh, the regulations probably came about because somebody had a good pitch. Um, I, I I could see it. It, it is all across the board, you know, how, how states issue their identification. Um, I think it's all probably, you know, on the heels of the, the revamp and security procedures for, for airlines and airports. Mm. Um, so I think this probably got tacked on as far as awareness training. I don't think there's much in awareness training other than does it have the little gold star? And um, now there are uh, widely propagated counterfeit, detection devices mm. at, at almost all airports. So I know all TSA uh, stands now have a, a, a way to verify um, holograms. And that's one of the real ID things mm. is it's get an embedded, embedded hologram and things like that. So. Also, T Tanya saying in the chat room there that um, uh, I think you can use your global entry cards too now. Yeah, I, I think so, because those global entry cards, you have been vetted by, uh, by TSA. David, how do you get on in Spain with, um, you know, obviously you've got your British passport, but you're living in Spain now. Yes. Um, well, so far there's not a huge amount has changed, really. Um, we're, 
we're still accepted here and nothing hugely has changed. We're waiting, we're waiting to see if we got kicked out in January, but nothing yet. <laughs> so, so we're still okay. I actually had a quick question for Nev actually on this because obviously you do a bit of traveling throughout the UK. Do you, I'm assuming you need to take your passport with you uh, for commercial flights, even within the UK. No, you don't. No. Oh, okay. That surprises me. Okay. Um, with it, if you're travelling domestically, you'll have your photo taken uh, when you okay. present your boarding pass on the these new automated machines, and then that's matched up um, when you get on the aircraft. So when you get to the gate, the only time where you do need your passport now is if you're going to the Republic of Ireland, and I also tend to take it if I'm going to Northern Ireland. Although strictly speaking, you don't need it. Um, it's just it, it, it's often it's a, a form of ideas often asked for. Put it that way. Oh, do you know? Do you know what? I, a small part of me is actually really glad that the whole Brexit thing has just come up because I I've really, <laughs> I've really missed it. Do you know what I mean? In, in all these uncertain times, the fact that we finally had the opportunity. To, to, to reminisce about the good old days of Brexit. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's just, oh, I feel... I was planning on doing a, a two-hour special on Brexit, actually, <laughs> just to uh, I, change, I, the, uh, change the mood. I, I, I feel all warm and fuzzy, and I don't think it is actually the... Uh, I don't think it's the uh, Bushmills anymore. I think, oh, it's just lovely. Oh, happy days. Oh, I miss those days. Yeah, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, the simple... Those, who, who'd have thought that Brexit was simpler times, eh? Oh. <laughs> anyway. I, I daren't move so, on to the next story. Yeah, no, I think... Because, I think because for anyone, for any of the <laughs> listeners who enjoy a lovely, beautiful beef burger, this next oh. story will undoubtedly make you cry. Nev, 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 you know, bring disappointment. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see what the opinion is at the end of it. This is on the businesstraveler.com website, and it says that uh, Japan Airlines is bringing Beyond Meat, a plant-based meat alternative to passengers on select routes between March the 1st and May the 31st this year, if they're flying, that is. Uh, the Japanese carrier will be serving Beyond Meat's Beyond Burger to its first-class customers, travelling from Los Angeles and San Francisco to Tokyo. Uh, the details of the routes this will be used on will be Los Angeles to Tokyo Narita, LA to Tokyo Haneda and San Francisco to Tokyo Haneda. Uh, founded in 2008, Beyond Meat offers plant-based burgers. The company has products uh, designed to simulate chicken, beef and pork sausage. Uh, Beyond Meat's portfolio of sorry <laughs> of fresh and frozen plant-based <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, oh no. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. They're really going for this in a big way. Uh, but also, a number of airlines have started to offer plant-based meat alternatives on their flights to meat shifting consumer preferences. I see what they did there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, last year, Hong Kong flag carrier Cathay Pacific served a plant-based pork alternative called Omnipork. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is a serious story. But there's too much innuendo for my life. <laughs> In your endo. Um, right. Oh, Nev, you've, you've, Nev you've, you've really burgered things up now. Right. Honestly, you're such a burger. Having yeah. said all that, I'd quite like to see what they taste like mm, because they absolutely. certainly look nice and I've, I've never tried a, uh, a plant 
based Interestingly, in the chat room, believe it or not, Chris Griggs has indeed tried one, and he says, I tried a Beyond Burger. It wasn't as bad as I feared, okay. uh, which is a surprise. Uh, Dr. Steph, I'm just trying to find it, because uh, I think it was a little bit, little bit earlier here. It's, 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 that's the trouble with a very busy chat room. It's difficult to find stuff. Uh, Dr. Steph says, I will say, I tried an Impossible Burger in Vegas. It was amazing. Couldn't actually tell the difference. And I must say, there's a few, uh, a few people I know who, who've tried um, in the UK here. Um, Burger King are offering a plant-based alternative. And uh, several people that I've spoken to who have had it have literally said, literally can't tell the difference. Um, mm. You know, it does make you wonder though how much meat was in the burgers originally. I mean, there, 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 there is that controversial uh, argument, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know. Uh, also, though, I mean, again, interesting point from the, from the lovely Miley. You can always rely on her for sensible comment. Uh, Sound. I wonder if all that processing of food makes things uh, uh, any more healthy. Um, Yes. Uh, in fact, actually, Micah, he's had one as well. He says that I've had a plant-based Whopper at Burger King, the Impossible Whopper, and it tasted no different. So, uh, well, tomorrow I'm going to be cutting the grass. So, right. I'm going to okay. Try and You're going to turn that into a burger, are you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm not quite sure. That, not quite sure that how that uh, works. This uh, is uh, yeah. Uh, also, again, Doctor Steph uh, says, uh, "What do you have to do to plants to make it taste like meat?" Um, I don't know, salt and pepper? <laughs> Maybe a little bit of light seasoning? I don't know. Um, I'll ask mum. She knows the answer to all these things. She's good at food. <laughs> so anyway, moving swiftly on from the plant-based story, Mr. David Corson, you'll take the next story, and it's all about a big one, uh, aircraft. <laughs> Oh yes, this is from flightglobal.com, and it's the, uh, the AN-225 returns to flight after modernization. Uh, the Antonov has restarted flights with the AN-225 outsized transport after a period of absence during which the aircraft underwent modernization. The Design Bureau says the aircraft has commenced a series of test flights following installation of a domestically designed power management and control system. Departing from the Gostomol airfield near Kiev on the 25th of March, and the AN-225 conducted a sortie of just under two hours. The AN-225 is a six-engined twin-finned derivative of the AN-124 and is the world's largest operational aircraft, um, and the airframe is the sole example. It spent more than one year out of service while the upgrade work has been carried out. Now, I haven't been lucky enough to ever seen this aircraft, but have any of you guys ever actually seen it in real life? No, there's no. only actually ever been one built. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying, Nev, I think this has flown into Stansted before. Yeah, it has. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things I didn't realise about this aircraft was that they actually built a second one of this, but they didn't finish it. Um yeah, it's still it's still waiting to be completed. Apparently, mm. they've kept the airframe and it's, it's there, ready to be completed if they get the investment for it. But the actually, yeah. this actual airframe was its first flight was in 1988, so there's no wonder it's uh, needed some modernisation. <laughs> if you um, if you Google uh, the 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 flight deck of this aircraft, wow, <laughs> it's, it's you, you must need one heck of a uh, license to be able to fly this aircraft because. Trust me, it puts a whole new meaning to the word steam gauges. 
<laughs> oh, I've seen a couple of um, videos on YouTube uh, w- with this. Yes, you're you're dead right. And also, I think uh, I don't know whether it's Bridgestone or Michelin that uh, supply the tyres for this aircraft, but they must be uh, very pleased with themselves. Well, it needs to have new tyres fitted. He's got so many. Uh, yeah, it's a worthwhile contract having, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, now, you, yeah, you... Lo- looking at the pictures, Carlos, it, it appears you need four flight engineers uh, to operate this, or maybe one of them is a navigator, but that's two pilots and four flight engineers up up in the flight deck just to monitor all the systems. Wow. It it is amazing. We need to um, try and sort, well, if we could ever try and source a a, a pilot of one of these aircraft to come to the show, because that'd be, um, Mm, because the flight flight deck is huge. The actual flight deck itself is is, is just massive. But, um, it, it does sound it does sound fascinating. Now you're talking about flying here, uh, Carlos, and obviously uh, we were having a conversation last night where you spent a significant amount of time playing a certain flight simulator, <laughs> uh, and that sort of leads nicely into the next story. Yeah, this one is uh, on the PC Gamer uh, website, and obviously for for lots of us across the globe, we are all on lockdown and we've got to stay at home and blah 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 because of the C word. Um, but uh, I'm sure a lot of you do have uh, PCs or good gaming PCs and may well have either Microsoft Flight Sim or, as I fly uh, here in the in the office, uh, X-Plane 11. But uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator uh, have got updates on for their new game, which comes out later, or it should come out, hopefully, uh, later on this year. They keep pushing the dates back for when this new version of Microsoft Flight Sim will come out. But Microsoft Flight Simulator will draw from air traffic data to simulate the skies exactly as they are in real time, oh, according wow. to the story. Um the uh, first of all, uh, the air traffic data will simulate most, if not all, of the aircraft charting the world at any given moment. And if the game goes offline, AI will take the reins temporarily. Meanwhile, if players choose to access the live players mode, weather will also be simulated according to real weather data, which actually X-Plane 11 does very well. Uh, so in other words, if you're flying through storms over Paris, uh, that will be because there are actually storms over Paris. Live players will be the main simulation component of the game, but there's also all uh, AI players filter, which lets you control pretty much everything about the simulation, including the weather. This means uh, it will be best for folk who just want to fly around and explore the world, rather than get grilled by other players for not being real enough. I know that from last night. Uh, It's also... um, Worth noting as well that um, I was looking at some of the specs, the requirements of this new game um, to be played in the PC, and it's safe to say, Matt, that you're going to need a fairly well-processing um, powered laptop with lots and lots yep. of RAM and a good graphics card. I am literally only aware of one laptop uh, that would be mad enough to play the uh, the, the new version and that is actually the one that belongs to our producer John. That's the uh, literally the spec, and and the spec on that machine is beyond ridiculous. And it only mm. and it only just meets the minimum spec. I mean, it's great. I mean, the, the, I popped some of the the pictures up there. I mean, it looks like the graphics are gonna be amazing. I mean, it's they're so, it is. I mean, uh, amazing. Even the one that you've got is pretty pretty damn good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, they're both on a par with each other, really. I mean, you know, I I, I had the uh, the original, the old Microsoft Flight Simulator. X when it came out 
Um, and the X-Plane kind of beat, sort of went further on from that with the graphics-wise and showing the actual aircraft movements and everything like that. But this, seeing the videos which are on YouTube of the, um, you know, the, what's going to be, obviously, this game is going to look like in, uh, when it comes out. Mm. It's They've even got, you know, the... If you watch one of the videos, it shows uh, a Cessna 172, and from the um, from the kind of pilot size, and it even shows you know the actual uh, instrument housing and stuff rattling and shaking as you're going down a runway. Which, <laughs> as everyone knows who flies a Cessna 150 or 172, will know they all vibrate and rattle around everywhere when you're going along uh, a not very well paved runway. But Armando, you. Before you went back to the states, you had a fairly good sim set up in uh, in your your house. Have you um, managed to put that all back together again in the uh, in the US? No, unfortunately not. Um, yeah, I had a, a, a X Plane Eleven set up with a pretty fast gaming lap laptop, and a at the time I had a uh, I think a fifty five inch monitor yeah. attached to it. But I also didn't have a television, so that was it. And that's how I spent most of my time. I've talked about it before, but uh, I didn't get a lot, a lot of opportunity to fly IFR or IMC in the UK, um, mostly because the regulations didn't allow it. So even though I was completely certified here in the US, um, over there in the UK, when I was flying for general aviation, I could only fly basically up to uh, PPL privileges, and, and that was restricted to day uh, VFR. <clears throat> so... I knew that I was only up there for two years, so I, I would keep my instrument uh, pro- proficiency, um, or at least just my my knowledge, um, by using X-Plane. So I, I've never been much of a gamer, but in this instance, I, I really got into the X-Plane thing because um, just because I, 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 I've always enjoyed instrument flying and instrument procedures, and, and I like the challenge of it. So that's what I used it for. Now, I have not set any of that stuff up. And I've just gone to a uh, virtual reality setup. So um, X-Plane 11 has a native um, VR capability. So I use it with an Oculus Rift. And uh, and I actually use it to practice emergency procedures in my current airplane. Because you can you can buy the, the $40 version of the airplane and then flip switches. And you can reach for things. And you can look around. Um, so it's, I think it's, it's actually good, not just for gaming, but for actual pilot proficiency. I am curious what, what um, this flight sim- this new flight simulator, Microsoft flight simulator is going to be like. I think it's just gonna, um, it, it's not, I, I've been tracking it and it's not only for the flight simulation market, but also for the whole gaming industry because a lot of it is gonna be cloud-based. Um, so you're gonna need a fast internet connection too, but uh, the graphics are so good because it's not stored on your computer. Oh right! Oh, so it's 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 all pulling. Actually, you 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 say that the the whole idea of you know virtual reality. Wow, like VR a VR headset. Well, have you tried it yet? What's it like? Uh, yeah, the the VR is pretty realistic. That I think the the uh, limitation right now is in the headsets, not the headsets, but the the you know the actual Oculus or I, there's another company out there that does one. The the, I guess resolution inside the, the headset isn't so good, but I think as the, that technology evolves a little bit, you're going to feel like you're in the airplane. It is an immersive experience. So if you can't afford the whole setup, just get a, a gaming laptop 
X-Plane or this, this new Microsoft Flight Simulator and, um, you know, a VR headset, and, and you're going to feel like you're in the airplane. Wow. Just to second what Armando said there with the training side of it, like I used it, I used uh, Flight Simulator when I was younger and then X-Plane more recently um, when I was doing my instrument rating just to stack, stay on top of things, and it's such a good way, an easy way to learn from home if there's a break from flying or something. Um, and I've also had the benefit of, of, of flown with some people now that are really into Flight Simulator, and a lot of people wonder, if it does, does it make a difference to, to flying a real aircraft? And, and in my experience, it does, because you're, you're kind of more comfortable with where everything is, and it's not completely weird, and it, it's a huge, huge benefit training I think. There we go that's what I use for the likes of X-Plane for those of you watching the YouTube video so just a basic throttle quadrant and joystick with various buttons on for controlling flaps and trim and all the other various bits you can set up for it's it's really great the, the actual sim itself um, Graphics wise as well with even with X plane 11, you know, some of the stuff the the the, the terrain you see In and around the area where me and Matt live is fairly Representative of what it is actually like in real life, but you can buy add-on packs which add even more detail and stuff to um, To the game, but yeah, can't wait for this to come out It's gonna be awesome and it's also gonna be a massive ping to the bank account when I have to buy uh, a, a I'll, I'll get Matt to build a um, a gaming laptop for me. Oh my goodness! Or me. a gaming tower. Yeah, I think it'll have to be a gaming tower to view. Or just go nuts yeah. and get yourself a, a an Xbox. That probably sounds like the most sensible thing to do. As Tony was saying in the chat room earlier. Nev, the next story is with you. <laughs> well, it's good to see that there's some investment going on in these rather difficult times. This is on the simpleflying.com, and it says that on March the 29th, uh, all Nippon Airways will introduce some upgraded experiences out of Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Uh, this will be located in Terminal 2, where ANA Fly uh, International Operations flock from. The enhancements include new self-service baggage drops, enhanced security op- uh, options, and three brand new lounges. Um, ANA is uh, one of Japan's uh, leading airlines, of course, and the airline has announced the opening of these upgraded areas in Terminal 2 to coincide with the start of major international operations from the terminal. Uh, Masaki Yokai, who's the senior vice president of ANA, had the following to say. ANA is always looking for opportunities to improve the passenger experience, and the coming change, uh, changes at Haneda will make the airport more convenient and comfortable for all ANA passengers. The three revamped lounges underscore ANA's commitment to superior comfort and culinary excellence and the new technological features at Haneda also be a significant step forward. We're doing all we can to not just keep pace with industry changes, but to stay ahead of the curve. Well, the new lounges are the ANA Suite Lounge, ANA Lounge and ANA Arrival Lounge. Uh, All are designed by a leading Japanese architect. Uh, with seating for 360, this is in the uh, ANA Suite Lounge. Uh, this is a large lounge with multiple areas. Uh, inside, the lounge will offer mesh partitions inspired by the famous shoji uh, partitions of Japan. Uh, on the third floor, there will be the live kitchen. Here, passengers will be able to, for, uh, able to order food prepared from a chef. Uh, food options include omelettes in the morning with a choice of toppings, and for dinner, uh, sushi. 
Uh, there also be a noodle bar, a, an a la carte dish option, and a seating area for dining. Uh, on the fourth floor, there will be a bar. Interestingly, this is a, the first A&A suite lounge to have a bar counter with seating for passengers in front of a barista or bartender. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in the morning, coffee and espresso will also be available. And from the afternoon, a bartender will be available to prepare your choice of over 20 cocktails, wine, Japanese sake and more. Uh, also on the fourth floor, ANA will have a napping area with six beds and five reclining chairs. Next to this napping area are private booths with televisions. Uh, the fourth floor is also where the lounge entrance is located. The design here is based on traditional Japanese gardens and bamboo forests. Moreover, there is a wheelchair accessible counter for passengers who have disability. Uh, the ANA lounge itself, the massive lounge, can accommodate up to 900 people. Uh, as in the suite lounge, the ANA lounge will have a buffet area with chefs and a noodle bar on the fourth floor. Uh, there is also a bar area on the full floor with booth seating. Here, passengers can also indulge in a varied drink menu. There are also 24 booth seats for passengers who desire some privacy. Some of these are larger to accommodate parties of two. <clears throat> and for kids, there'll be a kids' room on the fourth floor. This is a safe and secure environment for children to play in. And lastly, uh, ANA is opening an arrival lounge, which will be open from 04.30 to 12.30 local time. This space is designed to offer customers a chance to refresh after a flight. There are seating areas with this option to consume light meals and beverages. Uh, there are also 18 shower rooms for passengers. However, there is also an interesting feature in the lounge where ANA will offer a foot bath area with an ocean and a runway view. So overall, uh, the company is opening three new lounges uh, from March the 29th. So that's uh, tomorrow, isn't it? Day after tomorrow. Uh, with the opening of these new lounges in Terminal 2, however, the ANA Suite Lounge and ANA Lounge in Terminal 3 will shut down. These new lounges come after ANA has significantly invested in improver improving passenger experiences uh, during uh, and debuting, uh, sorry, debuting some new onboard products. Mm. In addition to all of this, at the Terminal 2 departure areas, ANA is offering self-service baggage drops, enhanced security machines that are more efficient, and new check-in areas for first-class and elite passengers. Well, if Matt was showing some pictures uh, during that, there's some uh, impressive construction there, isn't there? And it looks very, very classy indeed, isn't it? All three of those lounges look absolutely fantastic. Do you know, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't mind sitting there for a little while, I have to be honest, hmm. you know. Yeah. I was going to say, Nev, all the lounges that you've been in across the globe, um, obviously most of which would be A lounges, who, who's, who does it best out of all the lounges you've been, been to across the globe, as in I for think, comfort um, and for amenity? Yeah, uh, let me think. Uh, American in New York is quite a nice one. Uh, Cathay Pacific at um, Terminal 3 at Heathrow actually is quite a nice one. Um, that's, that's pretty spacious. Um, the trouble is that there's so, everybody's getting all this status now, so it's it's far busier than it used to be. Mm. Although, of course, with what's happening at the moment, I think that most people may lose some of their status, yeah. uh, and therefore later in the year it might be a little bit quieter. But um, yeah, they they certainly it's an important part of the experience for a lot of people. You know, these people are spending a lot of money on uh, business and first class flights, and so the lounge experience is uh, is important to them. 
Absolutely. Uh, listen, before we move on to some audio feedback from Nick Codling with some uh, some great details, actually, now we've seen something interesting that was brought to our attention by Captain Al of all uh, people that that was brought to the table. You'll see why that's a pun in a moment uh, when we were uh, when we were having a chat earlier in the week, and he said, "I know many of you uh, miss air travel on and on one of the forums online, Flyer Talk. We found an interesting thread for similarly minded people. If you're missing out on your favourite airline meal, why not recreate it like?" some of these people have uh, these are just some of the things that we've seen on the forum uh, and my challenge to the chat room uh, is uh, can you can you do any better so look here we go so here's here's an example right so i mean neville be familiar with this this is your finest airline uh, food here so this is this presumably is what uh, nev would expect whilst he's in uh, you know whilst he's in you know seat 1a you know there we are nice like, i presume nice little bit of chicken there a boiled egg and and tasty things mm. like that which i i, I think's not a bad going and now i'm immediately feeling hungry i mean presumably you've had something similar to that nev have you during well, your obviously uh, lob the egg out of there because <laughs> we uh, British Airways effort there, judging by the uh, serviette. Well, so. yes, quite absolutely. And so uh, this is a listener, or, or, or this is a, what somebody recreated, which I don't think is a bad effort. Look, in the same delivery, uh, quite a nice, nice effort. So I think, I think. Do you know what? I tell you what, I'm going to do uh, next week. I am going to try and recreate airplane food and I'll, I'll i'll film me doing it there you go all right so i shall see if i can come up with uh, with some kind of airline related food menu and i'll see if i can knock it up in time for next week's show shall we do that i like the sound of that perhaps you can do us a little kind of q a session while you're doing the preparation matt uh, right okay yeah why not uh what could the, what's the worst that can happen there so that brings the commercial news segment to a close this week. But we have got some feedback to uh, play back. Matt, who is the feedback from this week? Uh, well, uh, I mentioned it earlier. It's, it's, uh, it's been very kindly sent in to us by uh, Nick Codling. So here we go. Hi, everyone. This is Nick Codling here. Back again with some feedback. Uh, reading a few interesting articles over the last couple of days. Um, my new favourite website at the moment is Simple Flying. Uh, lots of great information coming out of those guys every day and um, some really nice articles recently. Um, a couple that caught my eye um, in light of the C word, which we won't be discussing. Um, there have been a number of uh, repatriation flights which have been occurring um, on behalf of the Canadian government. Um, in the last couple of days, Air Canada have been doing some flights using 777s into Casablanca. Um, I'm not sure why there seems to be so many Canadian people in North Africa at the moment. Maybe uh, maybe they're all on holiday there, who knows. Um, I'm sure it's a lovely part of the world to, to go and visit and I must go there myself sometime. However, the the thing that really caught my eye, which I thought was quite interesting, was last week there was actually uh, a 737-200 which was chartered from Nolinor Aviation. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Apologies to anyone living in northern Canada if I've mispronounced that. Um, so, yeah, they've got a 737-200, uh, which I believe the particular one that they used is actually... 36 years old and they flew that from I believe Montreal um, and they had to do a flight which went 
via Goose Bay in northern Canada, Keflavik in Iceland, uh, an overnight stop in Shannon in Ireland, and then on to Casablanca, um, and presumably the same route in return. Um, now, obviously, because of the, the age of the aircraft, um, it's a, a non-ETOPS aircraft, so it couldn't fly directly across the Atlantic. Um, and the the range of the aircraft would be restrictive as well, I believe. It's a, a range of 2,600 miles, which wouldn't be quite enough to do the, the jaunt all in one go. Um, but it was just seemed interesting to me that they, they chose that as a charter aircraft to do that journey and had to do such a, uh, a slightly uh, tortuous route as they did. Um, I mean, it's, it's one that uh, we saw uh, quite recently with, the, with all the D-Day landings or uh, the, the D-Day uh, commemoration events, if you like, that were occurring um, with a lot of... Um, C-47s coming across from North America um, and they were following the same sort of route, um, typically uh, looking at Goose Bay and then generally a landing in Iceland and then a hop across to, uh, sorry, Goose Bay to Greenland and then Greenland onto Iceland and then generally onto either Ireland or Scotland. Um, And that's actually, funnily enough, quite a commonly used route for ferrying smaller aircraft as well um, and there, there are even some some quite nice examples of that on YouTube where uh, various people have done trips in smaller aircraft uh, there's even one that I was watching on YouTube which was a series of a couple of guys that were flying around the world in a Cessna 172 uh, and they had to equip the the aircraft with um, ferry tanks to give themselves extra range uh, and where uh, protective uh, survival clothing uh, just you know in the event that they might have to ditch in the sea anyway um, interesting choice of aircraft the the 737-200 for that trip um, I actually came across the uh, the Nolanor 737-200 on a Sam Chewy video which I'll send uh, a link to, to Matt so that he can maybe put that in show notes um the the 200 is is quite nice in in the respect that it it um is quite widely used in the oil industry in the north of canada of which there is quite a lot um and that industry in particular tends to operate in out of the way places um uh, and generally they have a requirement for for shipping some unusual cargo so the the 200 actually is very well adapted to that because um it has a capability to land on gravel runways um, and it also has a huge cargo door in the side um, and the ability to operate in what they call a, a combi configuration where they can run cargo and passengers all in within the same uh, part of the fuselage um, rather than having the cargo underneath the passengers as is as is, tends to be the case uh, in larger aircraft. Um, and it can even be converted completely into a tanker. Um, the other cool thing about the, the 200 uh, that these guys have, um, I don't know if they've got more than one or whether this is their only 200. Um, I mean, I think one of the things we're used to seeing with, with more modern aircraft is the, the engine pods themselves are, 
are huge and obviously uh you know we all know the controversy surrounding the the max uh and the fact that uh, you know the larger engines have have resulted in a change in the cfg which has uh you know resulted in the uh the mcas uh, being implemented um but with the 200 it's got the tiny little engines that look like cigars um which are, are obviously quite good in the sense that they give better ground clearance if you're if you're landing on a potentially quite rough uh gravel strip uh the other thing that this aircraft actually has is a what they term a gravel kit now obviously one thing you don't want to be doing is ingesting a load of stuff into your engines when you're landing so when they land on a gravel strip they have a a front wheel skid which looks a bit like the sort of thing that an aircraft might have if it was landing on snow um so it's essentially a, a device for suppressing the the gravel being thrown up from the front wheel and that becoming ingested into the engines but the engines themselves also have a thing called a vortex generator which essentially is a stick which sticks out from the front of the engine and uses bleed air from the engine to blow high pressure air um, around the, the the sort of the inlet of the engine to to uh, effectively deflect any uh, gravel or debris that might be thrown up in the direction of the engine and stop it uh, entering the the incoming airflow of the engine. Uh, I think currently the the seven three seven two hundred is the only aircraft, the only jet aircraft that's that's uh, operating a system like that. So in that sense, it, it's very well adapted to to uh, what these guys are using it for. Um, as a follow on from that, uh, just talking about repatriation flights, I saw another article today saying that Air Greenland are doing what they're terming an air bridge service, uh, using my inverted commas there, um, to run flights between Nook in Greenland and Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, Greenland, of course, being a Danish territory. Um, and they're doing that for, uh, well, allowing, I guess, people to travel between the two cities, uh, you know, because they, they may need to, to get home or whatever uh, due to the uh, current circumstances. Um, the thing that's interesting about that is they're using a Dash 8 or, or have used a Dash 8. Uh, I think they did a flight uh, yesterday or within the last couple of days, um, today being the 24th of March. Um, the flight itself took three hours from Nook to Keflavik in Iceland. Um, they then stopped presumably a, a, a refueling stop and they then went on a further four hours to Copenhagen. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know what the ETOPS regulations are. Um, I'm, obviously this is a turboprop aircraft, the Dash 8. Um, so I don't know whether ETOP, uh, regulations only apply to jet aircraft. Uh, it would be interesting to to get some feedback on that anyway um just interesting to know that they were they were using a dash eight for essentially a seven hour journey um which uh, would have been quite would have felt quite long i guess um anyway that's all for me i've waffled on long enough uh thank you for everything that uh, 
that you guys do for keeping the show going and uh, it's always great to hear from you all the very best oh thank you nick nice one actually special mention he was saying there about um uh, simple flying i i, I want to I, I think we all, all most of us get uh, their feed into our our news boxes and i must say they are making a special effort to try and keep the the stories uh, or at least some of the stories in there sort mm. of a light in nature shall we say which uh, we are certainly finding challenging shall we say at the moment but uh, i will say i honestly listened to nick there talking about the 737-200 mm. Brought back, brought back some mer- very fond memories of my, my first journeys to um, Malta years ago with those. And those cigar-shaped engines he's on about are the um, Pratt Whitney JT8Ds, mm. uh, which they do. They are very narrow engines when you look at them, actually. But mm. um, very fond memories of that aircraft, flown on many different airlines with the with the Dash 200. And um, and like you said, they're still they're still in use today. They, they, they made a... Uh, uh, a combi version mm. and they also done a, a QC which is a quick change which they can change from a passenger carrying 737-200 to a, ca- a cargo carrying um, in, in quick time um, but yeah really good aircraft um, nice to uh, hear from Nick about that so uh, yeah thanks Nick for sending that in yeah very much appreciate yeah and uh, if you'd like to send in your own feedback we would love to have it it's very simple you can either record us a whatsapp note uh, the whatsapp number if you don't know already is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six you can just send a voice note uh, within that we can receive it here and play it out on the show or podcast at plaintalkinguk.com that's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com simple as that so on the next part of the show, moving swiftly on then, and uh, we're going to hand things over, I think, to uh, well, to our professional military chap. Yeah, guys, it's everybody's favorite part of the show, of course. It's the military section. So if you guys are ready, yeah, let's uh, hit the button, Matt. This first story is uh, something that I actually didn't even know existed until just recently. So from airforcemagazine.com, the Air Force's Air Combat Command plans to award multiple contracts for adversary air support at six bases as early as April. But the scope of the project, once anticipated to be worth up to $6 billion, would be much smaller than hoped. Uh, Seven companies were awarded indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts in October of 2019, allowing them to bid on specific task orders. Uh, Bids for the first round of awards, which are due by the end of this month, uh, will compromise just 8,848 sorties at six bases for the first year, plus an optional three more years for a total of about 26,000 sorties. Uh, The contract is uh, expected to be awarded in April or May of this year. Um, so the six bases, sorties, and uh, all the other information from the magazine are Kingsley Field Air National Guard Base in Oregon, uh, with about 800, or actually max total sorties 3,200 
Uh, Luke Air Force Base in Arizona was just over 6,000. Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico was just over 6,000. Eglin Air Force Base with 4,400. Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, uh, 4,000. And then Kelly Field in San Antonio, Texas with 2,000 sorties. Uh, the bath for the original plan was based on what we can do to maximize using contract resources to the improve, to improve the readiness of the force said uh, the, the uh, commanding general of air combat command general, Mike Holmes. Uh, every plan comes up against budgets. What we have now is a matter of what is affordable. Um, air combat command is prioritizing fighter training bases with a global or with the goal of producing more pilots. If we don't get the money to do the entire thing, I'd like to focus on supporting the training enterprise. Uh, general priorities are flying training units and then advanced training units at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, it kind of goes on to talk about what these uh, uh, companies are expected to do. Uh, let's see. This uh, senior manager of business development for tactical air support in Reno, Nevada, um, they said a staggered release of task orders was the expectation. He anticipates additional fighter bases at, uh, such as Joint Base Langley-Eustis. Uh, from an industry per perspective, we want more bases so we can have more airplanes flying. However, he noted that the industry is also challenged by how quickly it can get its airworthiness approvals and remanufacture uh, some airplanes. Um, so that's all I'll read from the actual article, but uh, basically – the Air Force is contracting out the aggressor support, so other airplanes to be bad guys. Uh, interestingly enough, tactical air support in Reno, uh, their hangar is where we uh, park our sport class airplanes for the Reno air races. So we're always in their way, they're always in our way, but uh, generally they're, they're pretty nice people. Uh, <clears throat> and, and they still have a mission to do even though uh, the Reno Air Races pretty much shuts down the airport. So that company is particularly using uh, F-5s, uh, advanced uh, Tigers. Uh, the T-7 is looking, it may be uh, doing some of this contract training. Um, L L-159 Honey Badgers, A-4 Skyhawks, uh, Mirage F-1s. So there's a quite a mix of aircraft out there. And we were joking about this the other day because we said, oh, we could buy an F-16 for a cool $8 million. Well, somebody may be actually buying F-16s off the market to go do some contract uh, aggressor work. So pretty interesting. You know, if you're a pilot, if you're a retired Air Force pilot, this may be a great way to get back into the cockpit and pretend shoot down some other people. Um, so there you go. I didn't even know we did contract uh, aggressor support, but apparently we're going to do more of it. Well, you, you learn something new every day on Monday. <laughs> every day is a school day. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Especially in aviation, isn't it? Yeah, mm. definitely. So the next story is on the aviationist.com. And uh, it's regarding actually another one of those large Russian built uh, aircraft again. Uh, this one, uh, Russian military launches humanitarian air bridge, sending Aleutian 76 airlifters to help Italy fight the COVID-19. Oh, drink, oh, drink. Sorry. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. <laughs> mm. Anyway, so an armada of uh, Aleutian 76 heavy transports fly critical relief supplies into, is that Pratisa? Pratisa? Dimea? Uh, I think it's Practica. 
Practica oh. de Mare Airbase. Okay. I think Jenny was in the chat room earlier, so she'll um, she'll put us uh, right. Uh, Russian Aerospace Forces Aleutian 76 transports loaded with medical supplies and medical specialists are flying uh, to Platica de Mer Air Base near Rome, Italy, in the ongoing COVID-19. Oh, boy, I said it again. <laughs> Effort. Photos of the aircraft were published uh, on Russia's media outlets, <laughs> but have not been widely reported in Western media. The aircraft originated from Tchlaksky military air base uh, airfield near oh boy i don't know where you picked this up mando <laughs> shulikov moscow oblast which is approximately according to the story 31 kilometers northeast of moscow now that i can say photos distributed by uh, to the media russian military office bench showed six Aleutian 76 heavy transport aircraft nato code name candid sitting in a parking area a taxiway apparently before departure reports indicate that at least nine of the Aleutian 76s were ready for the mission and that the airlifters involved in the relief mission belong to the russia's 224th air detachment of military transport aviation operating the Aleutian 76 md the aircraft have been reported uh, or have a reported payload capacity uh, of 48 thousand kilograms which is 105,000 822 pounds or to make it easier 50 tons of cargo that apparently includes medical support vehicles in addition to supplies and medical personnel according to reliable sources uh, inside russia to the aviationist.com the team of medical specialists dispatched to rome from moscow include major general sergey Sergei Kikot, a leading developer and specialist in the application of the latest samples of a special processing system. Major General Kiko is accredited uh, with fulfilling the task of organizing work in the difficult epidemiological conditions. Blimey, I need to stop the beer. No more C word, guys. Uh, uh, Lieutenant, Colin, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ehrman has extensive experience in epidemiological Oh, blimey, the E-word, treatment and eradication <laughs> across Africa. Uh, the team also includes Lieutenant Colonel Vladislav Kulish, a specialist in development of vaccines, didn't know I could speak Russian, did you, uh, for Ebola and bubonic plague. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kulish participated in the development of vaccines for Ebola and bubonic plague. Another member of the relief missions, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Yumanov, an associate professor of the Military Medical Academy, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Yumanov has extensive experience with anti-epidemic support and in natural disasters and emergencies, including deployment to India, the Republic of Guinea in Africa and other military, uh, another military medical supplies. Uh, specialists deployed, God, this story, Armando, you picked this for the damn good reasons. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, he's uh, Colonel uh, uh, Colonel Spinoff is the, a leading epidermatologist. Uh, epidermat oh, blimey, Matt! What is that? <laughs> I don't know. Don't look at me. <laughs> an author. He's an actual an author as well of more than seventy scientific papers on epidology. I mean, I, I think I think you've suffered enough, mate. If you want to sort of end it there, right there. <laughs> I'll, I'll still- come to the rescue, Carlos. Yeah. So uh, what, what's interesting about this story is I think here in America, it's easy to uh, focus on the U.S. Air Force, especially because, uh, you know, we're doing aviation news. I think there in the U.K., uh, it's easy to do aviation news. And the Russian Air Force uh, goes largely 
um, uncovered, at least in Western media. And uh, this is actually a positive. You know, I'll, I'll give a shout out. Over the last couple of years, um, especially with the Syrian conflict, whatever stand, whatever side you stand on, um, the Russian Air Force and the Russian forces have really got a chance to uh, experiment with some of their um, expeditionary capabilities. That is forward deploying uh, aircraft, whether it be fighter aircraft, transport aircraft. Um, and why I chose this story is this is uh, demonstrating that the Russian Air Force is also uh, developing its expeditionary humanitarian capability. Um, that's a rapid response to generate six IL-76s to go out and do a mission in, in rapid order. Is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good uh, capability to have. And, you know, as proud as I am to have served in the U.S. Air Force, it's, it's so important to uh, have other developed air forces um, go out there and do some of this humanitarian work, uh, demonstrate their capabilities, and, and, and really just work together. This is the one time, I mean, we can all talk about this, this virus thing. And when was the last time that, when's the last time that, that, that you or that we all witnessed an event that brought the whole world together uh, against the one particular thing. And, and this is a, again, sort of a generation defining event where uh, everybody's working towards the same common cause and to see the, the Russian air force deploying these aircraft and a humanitarian capability is uh, I think impressive. Also unprecedented. Let's be honest. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they've done, you know, they're, they're the Russian Air Force. They've been around for a while. But, uh, but it's, it's always a challenge to generate um, at least six aircraft. And I'll bet you there's, there's a lot more. This is just six that went to one mission. So um, good, uh, good for them, I say, actually. Uh, some uh, there, there's been a lot of sympathy for you in the chat room, uh, Carlos. It has to be said uh, with that story there. Uh, uh, Tony S made an excellent suggestion. Maybe if we mispronounce a an airport or a country or or a name or whatever, that should also oh, form part oh, of our drinking no. game. Um, and uh, we, we've been also learning about baby showers, um, virtual baby showers, which is which is interesting. Nev, you said you didn't you didn't really know that what baby showers were until recently. No, um, my. Um... My wife informed me that uh, her, uh, what is she, her niece was going to have a baby shower and uh, she was astonished that I didn't know what one of those was. Uh, I, no. I didn't. It's, so, it's an American thing, isn't it? I think that's yes. where it sort of comes from. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Moving on to the next story. Um, this next story for you, Nev, is actually sad news, really, because... Um, you know, this is uh, one of those uh, things that I think a lot of people would love to have tried at one mm-hmm. point. Definitely, yeah. This is on the uh, ctpost.com, which I guess is Connecticut. Uh, it says, in a recent ruling, the FAA revoked the Collings Foundation's permission to have passengers aboard its aircraft after a deadly crash last October, citing various safety reasons. Uh, the ruling comes nearly six months after a World War II B-17 bomber 909, uh, owned by the Collings Foundation, crashed soon after takeoff from Bradley International Airport on October the 2nd of last year. Uh, the aircraft experienced engine trouble. Seven people died, five passengers, the pilot and the co-pilot. Seven others were injured. Uh, the NTSB investigation is ongoing. Um, it also says that in the... Um, seven-page FAA decision released on Wednesday. Uh, The FAA Deputy Executive Director of Flight Service Standards, Robert Carty, indicated that there were issues with two of the aircraft's four engines and that the foundation didn't follow requirements to run the plane and carry passengers. Uh, 
Uh, Hunter Cheney, who's a spokesman for the Collings Foundation, said in a statement on Thursday, the Collings Foundation currently is reviewing the FAA's decision and evaluating our options. As a party to the NTSB investigation into the traffic tragic B-17 accident in Connecticut on October the 2nd of last year. We are not permitted to comment on issues pertaining to the accident investigation or findings to date. We do, however, look forward to discussing with the FAA its decision findings that were not addressed with the Foundation before the issuance of the FAA decision. Uh, Through 30 years of passenger carrying operations and until October the 2nd of last year, uh, the accident itself, uh, the Wings of Freedom Tour had never had an accident, injury or fatality. This record reflects a commitment to safety that has proudly set a standard among the warbird community for generations. The Foundation has always held safety as its top priority. The FAA ruling takes away the permission Collings had to charge for rides on its historic collection of planes. It also denied Collings Foundation's request for an extension of that permit for 10 aircraft. Uh, A few weeks after Bradley crashed, Collings Foundation's asked its supporters to support the exemption application to the FAA. In the decision, CARTI and the FAA understands flights on these historic aircraft are meaningful to some members of the public. He said the FAA is required to make sure everything is operating in the best way for public interest. The FAA findings, according to his decision, indicated that Collings was not fulfilling several requirements and that Collings lacked a safety culture necessary to continue to operate. Amongst the findings, Carty said, was that the crew chief on the flight that crashed was not trained for his role. Given the facts of the accident on October the 2nd and subsequent evidence of Collings' lack of competent uh, compliance, sorry, compliance, uh, the FAA has determined that granting the exemption would not be in the public interest because of the adverse effect on safety, Carty wrote. His decision indicated that the FAA continued to let Collings Foundation carry passengers on its aircraft. It would adversely affect safety. Well, with all these uh, military warbirds, um, you know, that's that's the one thing, isn't it? It's all about mm. safety. And if you have a, mm. a big moment like this, then uh, obviously there's a massive review and there's, they've obviously found some things that they're not happy with. And so things that uh, caused them concern. They've had the um, permission withdrawn to operate at the moment. Very sad. It's, su- it's such a shame. You know, the, these aircraft, you I would, oh, I would give sell anything to, to be able to have a, a flight in even a, a B seventeen or something like that. I think it's one of those things that um, even if you're not a military aircraft lover, you know, when you have an aircraft such like that, it's one of those aircraft. I think you'd always love to have a go in, you know, as a passenger. Certainly, yeah, mm. yeah, and and uh, you know, Mac McCauley, the the pilot of this aircraft. He was a, the director of uh, maintenance, I believe, for the aircraft. Um, he was he was a very well-respected pilot. He was a, um, he's done interviews um, with other podcasts. And I, I think when this happened, I played out um, or I read out as a personal note from uh, one of my friends who had flown with Mac. Um, so this isn't, you know, this is one of those unfortunate times where you have a report, a safety report that goes back and uh, paints a picture that that may not necessarily uh, be the whole picture. And 
you know, I feel for these guys because the Collings Foundation is is a unique organization. They're running unique aircraft. Um, and while they are required to, you know, have the safety management systems and the maintenance uh, processes, there's no community to uh, bounce ideas off of. There's not that many people running B-17s and B-24s. So, I think there was probably a lot of deference to the organization itself and how to run its own maintenance program and, and how to determine its own uh, safety culture. And I think that everyone in aviation would assume that operating these aircraft and, and respecting their legacy would lead to the highest standards mm. um, and they probably thought they did have high standards, but uh, mm. you know that if you re- read into the investigation or the preliminary, you know there was main- there was maintenance issues. They they pulled off the magnetos, they pulled out some of the cylinders, um, and they noticed significant wear that on a normal engine would not be acceptable. And again, there there's not that many, you know, right. I believe it's the right cyclone that's in the the B-17. There's just not that many of them. There's not that many spare parts. So how many magnetos can spare magnetos can you can you find for a B-17? So they were probably doing that the best the best that they could. Um, but, but unfortunately, it took something like this to, uh, I guess, highlight some of their shortfalls. You know, and 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 this is not to. Um, marginalize the organizations that do this or, or you know, uh, disrespect any of their pilots and crew because they are amazing people. Um, but it, it's just an unfortunate event that often happens with safety investigation boards. Mm. It's very sad indeed. But um, moving on, I think to the last story in the military segment. And for everyone who's stuck at home, and you want something to read, and you are a lover of uh, the military aircraft. David, you've got some ideas. Yeah, this story is with the aviationist.com. Um, and as you said, some great ideas for some uh, reading while we're all stuck in at home. Um, so on Tuesday, the March the 24th, they, uh, they covered an Instagram live story to get some, some recommendations for books that we can read while we're stuck inside. Um, and the list goes a bit like this. Number one is the F-35 Lightning II, from, the co- from concept to cockpit, which is ed- edited by Jeffrey Hamastra, by Timothy uh, Lewin and Lockheed Martin. It's a, this book costs over $100, so it's not a cheap book, but it's the, it's the authoritative technical reference about the non-classified systems on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter across all versions. It's a de facto current F-35 reference book um, since the aircraft has become so obliquous and has already um, established an early and successful combat record in at least two countries. It's extensive, but outstanding volume will be relevant for a long time. And number two on this list is Phantom Over Vietnam by John Trotty, published in 1977 by former U.S. Marine Corps F-4 Phantom II pilot. Um, He flew in the Vietnam conflict, and it provides a unique insight into the F-4 Phantom and its use in close air support operations in Southeast Asia. And number three is the Tornado Tornado Years, More Adventures of a Cold War Fast Jet Navigator by David Herriot. Uh, this is a sequel to his widely acclaimed The Adventures of a Cold War Fast Jet Navigator, The Buccaneer Years, 
He's an award-winning author, and he brings us to the back seat with a remarkable British aircraft and provides insights unavailable until now. And number four is Top Gun Days. Dogfighting, Cheating Death, and Hollywood Glory as one of America's best fighter jocks by Dave Baranek. Um, if the real-life Maverick wrote a book, this would be it. Dave Baranek, callsign Bio, was an elite F-14 Tomcat pilot and elite instructor at the famous U.S. Navy fighter weapons school Top Gun. He went on to consult for the film industry about the production of the hit in 1986 in Top Gun, which obviously starred Tom Cruise, um, and his insights into the fighter aviation and the sensation surrounding the film. This book is not to be missed. I'll tell you um, what, I mean, having been a big uh, big fan of it, uh, uh, well, I say big fan of it, I sort of watched it for the very first time in 3D in Carlos's house uh, while he was waiting. So, uh, <laughs> I, dare, I dare say it'll be an absolutely fantastic, uh, a fantastic read. Uh, yeah, so uh, the, the full list of the books, that uh, that's just a quick summary, sort of the top four uh, that they've listed there, the full list will be available in the show notes afterwards. Um, there's, I mean, there's uh, nearly 20 different recommendations there, so, I mean, there's plenty uh, to choose from so uh, it's uh, it's uh, going to be make some interesting reading no doubt make sure if you're buying the book use our amazon link through the <laughs> well yes quite also i've got two other books that aren't on there that should be of course is T- captain john hutchinson's book i mean that's obviously you know missing although i suppose it's not military is it but uh, oh dear well i'll tell you what D- dave have you, do you have a favorite book or two that that you like um, I remember, on the, what did I read last year? It was Skyfarer, which was a story of a 747 uh, pilot. It wasn't really his story, but he was just a, he was a part-time writer, I think, and, and that one would always stick in my mind. I think it was Mark. I'll have to look up who the author was, but Skyfarer was a favourite of mine. Oh, now, come on, Armando. You can't throw that question to David. I'm going to have to ask you the same question as well. Uh, what, what, is, uh, what would your pick be for the ultimate book to, to read? If, you, if you're looking for aviation, where would you go? Uh I think military book for me, one that stands out is Half a Wing, Three Engines and a Prayer. Uh, Brian O'Neill, that's about B-17s in World War II. Mm. I remember my sister gave me that book, and, uh, and I read it my first time in, on a deployment. And a non-military book, uh, one that's a pretty quick read, but it's, a, it's pretty funny. It's kind of a, an amalgamation of, of funny airplane stories. is uh, Air Vagabonds, uh, Oceans, Airmen, and a Quest for Adventure by Anthony Vallone. Um, so go check that one out. How about Carlos Nev? Do you guys have them? I yeah. I I being a commercial lover of the commercial stuff, I really enjoyed Sully's book when he when he released that. Um, not just because it was uh, about the miracle on the Hudson, but it also covered Sully's military background as well, which was quite interesting to uh, to read in the book. Mm, Nev, have you got a favourite? Yeah, I think my one uh, was uh, by uh, Pete Burkill, the uh, British Airways captain uh, that had his uh, two engines on his 777 fail on, on finals to uh, the runway at Heathrow. Uh, it's called, I think it's called 35 Seconds to Disaster or something. Oh, wow. That was a really, really interesting book. It tells the story of how it all happened, but more importantly, all the difficulties he went through afterwards, bearing in mind that everybody walked up, walked off alive and well. Mm. Absolutely. So, move, before we move on to have a quick Q&A session with David, as we have him on this week as a guest, Armando, you've got uh, a story to tell us about throwing um, a certain wife out of an aircraft. <laughs> well, if you're if you're watching the YouTube feed, 
Uh, Matt's going to play out this video, and we've been talking about it. This was the same day that uh, uh, now I didn't have to convince Steph to jump out of an airplane. She probably approached me about it. But we did have to convince Megan to jump out of the airplane. Um, <laughs> so I don't have Steph's video, but uh, but it was pretty much the same uh, process. So if you're watching the video, what, what's happening here, now this is a Cessna 182. We load it up with five people most of the time. Uh, as you can see, there's actually another young lady, uh, Candace, sitting behind my seat. So we've got five people in full parachutes, full kit. They're both doing a, uh, a tandem jump, plus the pilot who's wearing a parachute. Um, so it's a pretty heavily loaded. Now, Steph, feel hang free on, to... Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why on earth is the pilot wearing a parachute? What, what were you expecting there exactly? <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in, in parachute jumping. If you have an inadvertent uh, parachute deployment while somebody's on the step or with the door open, those parachutes, their parachute may, be, may get caught up in the, um, in the flight controls. So we wear a parachute for emergencies. And if there is an emergency, we're all getting out of that airplane. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, Steph, feel free to, to comment in the chat room as to what's happening here. But basically, we the place that I fly out of... Um, we take off out of a 2,500-foot grass strip, it's a curved runway surrounded by trees and power lines and an underpowered 182. Um, we get up to a 10,000 feet uh, AGL, so it's about 11,000 feet MSL here in the in the Charlotte area. Um, <laughs> yeah, Steph says climb to altitude super slow in a 182. <laughs> it is. It takes us about 20 minutes in the middle of summer to get up there, but it's a great time to enjoy the view. Uh, oh, we open wow. up. Yeah, we get up there, we open up the door. Now, the, the instructors and I have planned out where we're going to do this. And then very quickly, the you know the door comes open, they spot the landing zone, and away they go. There's just sort of a, a one, two, three count, um, and then and off they go. They just go right off of the step and down. Now, as I'm tossing them out, the uh, I'm guarding the controls uh, just in case somebody's arm or foot or something gets out there uh, they uh, they may hit the mixture control or the propeller control um, and I'm trying to do this at uh, just about 80 knots so I'm just above stall speed in the 182 because um, they don't they don't want to jump into a, a big wind um, so uh, Tony asks who calculates the dropout point we all do um, before we go jump we sit there and we figure out all of the winds aloft and the intermediate winds at each, um, every wow. thousand feet. And then we average it out and come up with a GPS point that we aim to. And I will do a run-in, uh, what's called a run-in. So I'll point the airplane into a specific direction and give them a, uh, a spot, basically. It'll be, you know, a half mile, a quarter mile from the end of the runway at a certain heading. And... I will let them know when, when we get to that spot and say, you know, you're cleared to go. And then it's up to their, to the instructor. Um, or if you're doing a, um, if you're not flying a, doing a tandem, if you're doing, just doing your own jump, then it's, you know, the pilot lets you know. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, Steph, if you could tell me from 10,000 feet about uh, how long they are free falling. I don't think it's very long, probably... 15, 20 seconds or so. But then uh, once the canopy opens, it's a it's a good four or five minutes on the way down. Now, I've jumped a couple times myself uh, doing tandems, but uh, 
but you know, I, I, I wish I had Steph's voiceover right now, or because she can <laughs> she can call in. <laughs> uh, uh, Richard's actually saying interestingly, he says that lift increase when they get out must take some getting used to as the pilot. Seriously, because I suppose the whole the whole weight the dynamics of the of the the whole thing must completely change as those people leave the aircraft. It does. Um, so Steph just answered. It's forty five seconds under freefall, and then five minutes under under or not under freefall. Forty five seconds freefall and five minutes under canopy. Um, yeah, and not only that, but you're the yaw. So you've got uh, two people that are out there on the step. So the the weight wants to take the airplane that that way, but then the drag that is produced by them being out there also wants to yaw the airplane to the right. So you're doing a a left rudder stomp trying to keep the wings level, putting power in, but not too much power because you're just above stall. Um, and, and then once they go, you can definitely feel the airplane move, especially in a 182. Now, Stuart over there in the UK, um, and I think I actually skydived from Stuart's airplane. We just didn't know each other at the time. But a caravan or a twin otter is a little bit more stable jump platform, so you wouldn't feel it as much. Um, but it, it, it's just a wonderful experience. Um Geez, you know, you're coming down under canopy. Everything's super quiet, like Steph's saying in the chat room. And uh, and it's just an amazing view. Actually, then, you're, you're lucky on that respect for, for your um, jumpers and stuff, Armando, because with the caravan, um, when when I sat right seat with Stuart in that and the jumpers jumped out, the door stays open and it is really cold up there. <laughs> yeah, we just, once the jumpers are gone, I just throw in a little bit of... of uh, of right rudder or left rudder and then the wind pushes the uh the door back closed and i just kind of catch it and, and lock it so um now the caravan's a turbine airplane so you can just pull the throttle and shoot for the ground this is a we only have one airplane in my outfit so um we have to watch out for shock cooling so i keep the power up a little bit and uh, make sure we don't cool the engine we've got a digital engine um, monitor so we make sure we don't shock cool the cylinders well, and most importantly, I think a polite round of applause for Megan successfully being yeah. an aeroplane. I think that's quite, yeah. that's quite an impressive achievement, it has to be said. Actually, um, I have to say, for anyone who's listening to the show as an audio download, you need, really seriously need to take yourselves over to the YouTube channel, PTUK, and just check out that video because that was really, really good, Armando. So we're getting a few people who are chopping in. Uh, chopping in Stuart Hunt, uh, you, who you may remember from the 100th. He's saying it's such a rush be, being thrown out of an aeroplane. I mean, it, it's just bonkers. I, I, I don't understand. You know, it, I don't really understand it. I have to be honest. I don't understand why anybody would want to do that. Well, we'll uh, get you to it at some point, Matt. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm keeping myself fat. I'm doing it on purpose. Uh, <laughs> no, no, because I'll just offer you. I'll offer you a glass of milk before we go. A glass of milk. Uh, okay, you're going to have to explain that to me. Uh, what does what does that mean? <laughs> I'll, I'll let I'll let the uh, I'll let the YouTube chat room explain to right. the, you okay. what I mean by a glass of milk before we take you. Okay. Oh right, is that is that a pity the fool type uh, thing? That's yeah. correct. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Anyway, enough <laughs> of this. <laughs> anyway, well, I, I will going. say uh, a round of applause to Steph that day too because. Uh, uh, Laney's airstrip is where we do this. It's a pretty small airstrip, and our staff does not let anyone with less than 100 jumps um, jump there by themselves without an instructor. And, of course, uh, Steph does have that, and she was just a, a just a, a, a great trooper, you know, and uh, very safety conscious, and she noticed that, um, that this operation also was. So 
shout like, out I mean, to Steph that day too. I mean, hopefully Steph has got the video. Perhaps she'll send it into us, and we we can we can play it out. You never know. Uh, I good. hope so. I hope so too. I think she had a, a GoPro on her helmet. Um, Steph Steph wears a full face helmet. Um, oh, okay. I lost the video. It, it was a corrupted file, unfortunately, oh, from uh, Steph's slide. So. Oh well, never mind. So, as you all know, we have got David Corston back on the show this week as a guest. He's not been on for a while, and that's because he, as I said at the beginning of the show, he has moved to pastures new, well, not too far away, in Spain. But, uh, David, welcome onto the show, and thanks for joining us again tonight on the show. It's great to have you back on. So, David, what's, um, what's changed for you in the last kind of 12 months? Because you've, you've uh, kind of made leaps and bounds with your flying. Uh, yeah, I think last time I spoke to you, I was in the process of doing my, my CPL, my commercial license. Um, and then after after getting that, I thought I'd, I'd love to give instructing a go. And I liked the sound of that. So I moved to southern Spain, Jerez, um, and did my, my CFI qualification, my flight instructor rating here. Um, and then now for the last year, I've been working as an instructor, teaching PPL. Um, and whilst doing that, I also got my instrument rating done as well. So that's all done. Learning, uh, obviously, te- or teaching, learning and teaching, two very different things. Obviously, you were in that situation at one point, you know, sitting in a classroom and learning, going through all the various exams and stuff. H- how easy is it to make that transition to, to being the, the person who's doing the teaching rather than... Um, well, there's two sides of it, really. Like the, the flying side of it, I found easier because it's, it's just flying and then explaining why you're doing something and then, and then how to do it, which is okay. But the, the theory side of it and the, giving the classroom lessons was completely new to me. Um, and it, it's all the theory you learn, you pass the exams, and then a lot of it you forget <laughs> because you've passed the exam. Um, and then you have to find out in your brain where that knowledge was and somehow remember how you, how you teach someone that. But it's been good. I think for me when I was... The most fun I had flying was it was flying with other people and then explaining about flying. So, so I thought I'd like instructing, and I absolutely love it. I really love it. Apart from the cost of obviously the CFI training, what was the best part of the um, the course itself for being I an instructor? For me, the instructor course was by far the the most fun course I've ever done um, as part of flying. Um, it really it pushed me. Um, I think, and it pushes the aircraft as well because you, you kind of really you need to you need to see how far you can push things before something's about to go wrong. So so throughout the course, I, I was taught to kind of push the aircraft, and you have an instructor with you, which plays the part of a student, um, getting into some really unusual attitudes, some unusual speeds to like stalls and all sorts of things, and then just realizing that you you have you you do have the ability to kind of recover from that and you you can push it a lot further than you originally thought you had so i think pushing the limits a bit further for me was, was by far the best bit so matt we've got some questions in the chat remember me uh yes absolutely we'll start with tony uh he's saying actually um uh question for david how does flying in spain compare with flying here in the uk uh i would say one of the hardest things about flying, well, it's not hard, but one of the most different things in flying in Spain is, is the airspace um, and also the, the air traffic control. I fly from a, a controlled airport, uh, so that's a bit different from a lot of places in the UK where I'm controlled. Um, the airspace is, is fairly, it's, it's easier than the UK. The UK has got very, very congested airspace for, for GA flying. 
but in Spain we're quite lucky because we have quite a lot of space, a lot more than there is in the UK. Um, but as far as the flying is concerned, the flying is, is pretty much the same. The, the aircraft are the same, and the PPL syllabus that I teach is a UK syllabus, um, so that part of it is the same. So, I mean, do you do you have to do any kind of conversion or anything? So, if you were to, if you wanted to come and do CFI here in the UK, would you have to make alterations? Uh, no. So, where I work, we're a, an, an, a training organisation which is um, authorised by the UK CAA. So, you can come and train here in Spain, um, complete your training, and then you get issued with the UK PPL. So, it's, it's pretty much exactly the same. Wow. So we've got a question from Myla in the chat room, David. Uh, Myla's asking, what's your next step going to be? Uh, for me, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, to be honest, I, came, I, I started instructing think, thinking I might do it for a few years and then move on to and see if I could get an, a commercial job, um, see what's next. But uh, I absolutely love instructing. I'm, uh, there's, there's no desperate urge for me to move on. Um, I really enjoy it. You never know what's around the corner. And the good thing about instructing is you meet, you meet all sorts of other people that have got all sorts of different aviation jobs, um, flying float planes, doing, doing all sorts of things like Armando was doing, like parachute tropic. There's, there's all so many different things that I would love to do, and I really don't know what's next, really. Who knows? Nev, question for uh, David. Yeah, do you think... Um, with the congested airspace that we've got in the UK, for example, um, with all the limitations that that, that that gives you, do you think that puts people off trying to do uh, take their, their PPL here and, and they would prefer to go to uh, countries w without those restrictions? Uh, I certainly think it could do. I think there's certainly the the possibility that in the UK that you could suffer like air, airspace infringements and you need to be very 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 careful um, at different altitude bus and things like that so it it has the potential to put people off it shouldn't do because as long as you know where you are and you know where you're flying and you know where the airspace restrictions are it shouldn't be a problem but the potential is there for it for it to be, become a problem certainly for for new student pilots I would think. Looking at costs, David, obviously we, we all know that the the cost of learning to fly in the UK. Is it, um, obviously, you've got the euro over in Spain as opposed to the pound or sterling. Is it cheaper per hour to learn to fly over in Spain? I think it's, it's roughly on par. There's not much difference. But the main benefits that we have here in Spain is that we have, we have people that come for a set period of time, be it um, between like four to six weeks, something like that. Um, but because we have good weather, they, they can really make the most of that six weeks um, and we can get most people can complete their, their PPL within about six weeks, depending on a few days of bad weather. But you get that, that continuity of training, whereas, as you know, in the UK, sometimes you can go weeks, possibly months without flying. Um, and then the next lesson you could take, could you could spend an hour recapping what you've done before. So the main benefit we have is that you, you can just train one day after the next, after the next, and it's quite fresh in the memory. So I think that's the main benefit. So, Matt, we've got a question from the chat room. Uh, from Tony S. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he's saying, uh, without without saying the, the other word that we were avoiding uh, <laughs> until the C word arrived, uh, with the withdrawal um, of the UK from uh, the EASA, uh, is, is that going to have any kind of impact on your ability to train abroad? Or is it one of those where actually, um, you know, ha have they put a system in place? Do you, do you know what the plan is yet? Yeah, well, so EASA is the, Euro the European Aviation Safety Agency. So they previously 
um, looked over the whole of the, obviously the European the aviation in Europe. Uh, with Brexit happening, um, yeah, it is going to change things. Um, on it depends which kind of license you have and what you're you're going for. Um, with just a PPL, it's okay because a PPL is a national license, but um, commercial pilots licenses, um, so they're not going to be uh, recognised by. Um, places like Spain. So, for instance, many of the instructors, myself included, have had to switch our licenses from the UK because basically we have aircraft that aren't, they're not UK aircraft, they're Spanish aircraft and not a UK license. I can't fly, um, or potentially won't be able to fly a Spanish registered aircraft. So, yeah, it does, it is changing things. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't stop everything. You can still get a UK PPL, no problem. Um, but, it, but it does certainly have a few new challenges. Armando, any questions from uh, you for David? Yeah, as a flight instructor, uh, analog or digital? I prefer analog. Um, I, 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 I don't know, maybe I'm biased, but I think the best way is to learn analog and know how it all works and be able to scan and, and fly that way. And then I, my personal opinion is that the transition going from analog to digital is easier than going the other way around, learning digital and then going back to analog. But I'm sure that's very personal. And I think... It's probably changing. I think uh, more and more people now are learning on analog because most commercial operations are, are digital. Sorry, so I think it's it's changing as we speak. But for me, I prefer analog. Definitely. <laughs> I, Matt, I, a question from the PTUK podcast. Yes, absolutely. I think I think the, uh, John, our producer, is asking a question. He said the last time that you were on, uh, you said that you would quite like to have uh, gotten a chance to. Um, fly in a Cirrus, especially with the air conditioning in the hot Spanish weather. Have you had the chance to do that yet? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I would love to. Uh, my views haven't changed. I would absolutely love to fly a Cirrus one day and be able to instruct in a Cirrus would be a dream come true, but not yet. Actually, one, one last question before we wrap up, David, with you. Obviously, you're, the flight school that you, um, you fly at over in Spain um, have probably got a few different types of aircraft you fly. I think you said you've, you've flown the low wing and the high wing uh, aircraft. Uh, your favourite between, obviously, the Cessnas and the Pipers, is there any sort of particular one you prefer to um, to fly? I would, I would say we do 90% of our training in Cessnas, but my personal view is still, I still like low wing. I think the benefits you get when you're flying in a circuit um, and you're turning maybe from downwind to base and base to final, um, and with a low-wing aircraft, you can see the traffic and the runway at all times, whereas with the Cessna aircraft, it's, uh, it's kind of annoying sometimes when you go from downwind to base. And that traffic that you did have in sight a second ago is suddenly blocked by a wing that's in the way. But they're both amazing. <laughs> it doesn't make much difference flying-wise, but that's my opinion. Do, do you know what? When this is all over, I reckon we should have a little PTUK road trip. We should all go out to see David, and David will have to take us for a little flight. Yes. Show, show us you're, all, you're all very welcome. Yeah, any time, any time. I think we should do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, it's uh, been lovely to speak to you as always on the show. So oh, thanks uh, again for produ- coming on. Producers oh. say the last time that David was on was actually on episode two two eight. There you go. <laughs> oh, two two eight. There we go. I remember where I remember it was your is the garden. I remember it was in the, oh, in yeah, the summer. We were in the garden studio, so I remember that. <laughs> Gosh, also featuring Myla that day as well. Uh, FYI. <laughs> ah, there we are. Really? So. We're going to start to wrap up the show for this week, but we'll do, uh, obviously, a quick quick round robin before we do of what everyone is up to this week. So I think... I don't think week, that'll take long. <laughs> this, I think 
this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's everyone doing this week? I think this week we'll start. We'll we'll have our guest first. So, uh, uh, Dave, what are you uh, what you got plans for this week? Going I'd anywhere love, nice? I'd love to say something exciting, but um, no, I think we, I might do some. We might do some ground school via Skype with some of the students still. But apart from that, <laughs> staying in and uh, yeah. That's it. I wish I'd say more interesting to say. John Jester in the chat room saying some of us actually still have to work. I mean, there, there, there's a shock. I'm, oh, I'm, I, I, I well, don't know. John, I, I would... John, John flies for a major cargo carrier on oh, the 747, okay. yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. John's actually pretty busy right now. Yes, I bet. Oh, good on you, John. Yeah, thank goodness. I'm glad someone is. <laughs> so, Nev, what's uh, what's on the on the books for uh, for, for this week? Well, if my boss is listening, I shall be extremely busy uh, <laughs> working. And if he's not busy, ten or eleven hours a day, minimum at home. Um, of course, if not, then well, we'll have to see. It is actually, funnily enough, we're actually quite busy at the moment. But that's that's we're trying to keep the momentum going. But uh, all of our company just about are working from home, so mm. that makes it quite challenging. Um, we are doing various meetups though. Uh, not just sort of team meetups at work, but also industry meetups virtually like this. I've got one coming up in about half an hour, actually. Oh, right. Uh, well, we better hurry up then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our American friends call the, uh, you know, uh, the after uh, after work beer. So, um, oh, that sounds nice. Uh, I have my beer. Well, and we. Uh, for that purpose well we've been we've been doing a lot of that actually ourselves haven't we we've yes. been we've been sort of putting uh, messages out there we've been chatting to, to listeners and stuff uh, and yeah. uh, we'll probably do a little bit more of that that next week interestingly enough so I, I, Tony uh, I, I seem to remember Tony drives trucks for a living if I if I recall correctly yes uh, so obviously he's very very busy uh, Stuart who we mentioned earlier uh, he works uh, he works for a company that specialises in servicing medical equipment so obviously he's very busy at the moment and uh, I Richard Adams, I love it. Brilliant. You can always stay at home. Right. Okay. Anyway. Sorry, I forgot. Oh. I need to say Nick's just reminded me because actually behind me is a picture. Uh, I mean, everybody's got pictures behind them now. Uh, it's sort of almost lost all meaning. But uh, behind me is a picture that was very kindly sent to, uh, to, to me by the, the guy who sent us our audio feedback, Nick Codling. A great photograph. So thank you very much for that. Uh, it's, um, Armando, what's, what's going on in the world of um, Armando next week? Well, uh, much like John, uh, the transport industry is not uh, completely stopped. So I, I am leaving on Sunday for a three-day trip. Um, so I'll be flying for three days and then back home uh, after that for an unknown amount of time because our uh, company, like every other company, is is trying to figure out how to, how to do this. Um, so we actually don't have an April schedule yet. So I may be off. I may not be off. I may be working a lot. I have no idea. Wow. Okay. Mm. Uncertain times, I think. Matt, uh, I'm guessing you're um, going out clubbing this week and partying. Oh, absolutely. Like I do most weekends, to be fair. Yeah, nothing, nothing's changed here. Absolutely. I, although uh, Nev tagged me in a tweet that I, where I was, I, I nearly jumped in my car and went to a picnic, and then realised we were supposed to be social distancing. So, uh, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I didn't do that. I, I decided to stay at home. <laughs> Well, it's all fun and games, isn't it? Yeah. I think I think we, it's safe to say that we're all trying to do our bit for, mm-hmm. with this social distancing yeah. thing. And I and, and I, I think I speak for all the hosts of the show and everyone when we all hope that everyone you know really really stays safe and yep, well absolutely. in this crisis. And 
as we've said, we'll put out as much content as we can through social media, including Nev's Q&A on Wednesday. Yeah. Looking forward to that, Nev. <laughs> and uh, obviously also all the other little bits and pieces we put out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, everyone stay safe and look after yourselves. And while you're all at home with very little to do, why not reach out to us on uh, on our various channels? So search social media for Plain Talking UK. Uh, you can bombard Carlos with uh, messages, which I think is what everybody should be doing. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. That's a WhatsApp number. So if you've got WhatsApp on your phone, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. That's also a great way of sending in audio feedback if you would like to get involved. Email the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. If your system doesn't allow you to send emails from within a browser, then you can take yourself to www www.plaintalkinguk.com you can fill in the contact form on there get in touch via that you can also buy t-shirts from the show on there you'll also find links to Patreon uh, if you would be if you are, are in a position to do so and would like to help us in regard to keeping the show running uh, you can become a, a Patreon and do stuff there obviously you completely understand especially at the moment we've all got much better things we could be spending our money on frankly uh, but uh, we are still doing our Amazon shopping everybody's still shopping on Amazon and if you use our link that is on the website uh, what we do get uh, for that is an advertising referral fee so you can actually help the show out without doing anything at all but uh, as we said at the top of the show a big thank you to everybody who contributes towards the show either by PayPal as I know some of you do and also via Patreon and by using the show link it's very much appreciated uh, so we're going to start wrapping up the show Show. Uh, we certainly are. Uh, and uh, as a slight change to to our norm, we have something different. Uh, we have somebody who's going to sing the show out for us. If ever, if anybody has uh, ever come across a chap by the name of Matt Lucas, then you'll be very aware that he's used to uh, sharing with us lots of funny and silly things. So we thought we'd uh, share a public service message as we uh, come out of the show. So uh, everybody, say goodbye, please. Yeah, bye. bye please goodbye <laughs> take care everyone see you see you all next week bye 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 everyone bye hello baked potato changed my life baked potato showed me the way if you want to know what is wrong from right you must listen to what potatoes say Wash your hands and stay indoors, thank you, baked potato. Only go to grocery stores, thank you, baked potato. If you want to have a better day, you must listen to what the baked potatoes say. Keep some distance, make some space, thank you, baked potato. Remember not to touch your face, thank you, baked potato. If you want to have a better day, you must listen to what the baked potato say. Potato.